Good morning. Hi, Hi Brian. Shabbat shalom, Stephen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Angela. Good morning. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Judy. Good to see you. Hi, David. Hey, Bob. Good to see you. Shabbat shalom. Dave and Dave. Yeah. Hi, Sherry. Good morning to you. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. Hi, Murray. Hi, Vern. Good luck. Shabbat shalom. Good morning to you. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Krista. Hi. Shabbat shalom, Dr. P. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, Dr. P. Hi, Joy. Good to see you. Hi, Mark. Good to see you. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Glad you guys are here. You know, I'm able to recognize people's voices now, which is good. Which is we're getting to know each other pretty well here. Yeah. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Olaf. Shabbat shalom, Dr. Pigeon. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Let's see. Shabbat shalom, little wasi. Shabbat shalom. Good morning. Good morning. Hey. I see you. Hey, Big smile. Hi. Hey. Hi. Why, why are you laughing at me? <laughs> right, let's see. Oh, Danny. Why is he so laughing at me? Rod, yeah, Rod's with us. Yeah. You know, today, while we're doing a kind of our preliminary discussion, we're going to have... Uh, good morning, Ipa. Hi, Corey. Good to see you. Bachelor. Well, I would say top of the morning to you, but it's actually evening there. Yeah, six o'clock. Yes. Six o'clock, yes. <laughs> the, um, I was going to say that uh, we're, we're going to have a difficult Torah portion today. And uh, so we're going, but we are going to discuss it. We're going to talk about the parameters of it. And we're going to see how we're going to do with it. Okay. Who are those little girls you have with you, Ola Say? Those are the two prettiest smiles, I think, on earth this morning. Yes, they are right there. Those are my dollars. Uh, actually, they are three. The, the joy of life. Right beautiful. There. there it is right there. The joy of life, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah, so uh, as we talk about these things today, uh, this is going to, like I say, this Torah portion is going to be difficult, and it's going to be, shall we say, hmm, uh, PG thirteen, right? This is a this is a PG thirteen Torah portion, so keep that in mind. All right, you guys, I'm going to try to couch it as best I can, so that we can speak in terms of um, uh, discretionary discussion. But nonetheless, we are going to talk about these things, and we're going to talk about what they're doing there. What they're doing in the Torah and what they mean to us. And uh, oh, Akina is joining us. Very good. But before we do, you know, of course, we want we want to pray uh, this morning in our opening discussion for uh, Shane Nock, uh, who is in a very difficult season right now uh, concerning his health. And that's all I'm going to say about it is to say that he's in a difficult season concerning his health, very difficult. And we want to be able to lift him up, a dear brother to us. And, um, Could you lift up another prayer? 
Bucker. I only lift. I only lift up one person, Angelo. That's it. Everybody else is cut off. No, I'm going to say if you lifted me up first, you'd have a hernia at this point. I'm getting overweight too much here. <laughs> uh, that, uh, okay, go ahead. Keep going, Angelo. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I've been praying all week about something, and it kind of very interesting manifested itself. So it's in regards to actually bringing the name and the word to a group of Methodists tomorrow. And there's a guy that owns a local shop here that I've been able to, 5 o'clock in the morning, share just out of uh, Hebrew, uh, the name and the Shabbat and so on and so forth. And he was receptive. So I know I'm walking into Trinity land, but the guy sounds like he's, he's looking forward to it. So at the end of their meeting, I have an opportunity to possibly have an hour with these gentlemen and a few others. So would really like to have the Ruachs extra on that one for sure. Be able to yeah. Did you say you're walking into Trinity Land? Is that what I heard? Trinity you say? Land, yeah, the triune noon time, so to speak. Yeah, uh, at noon, triune at noon. Hi, <laughs> <I> noon. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess that's a way of putting it, now, isn't it? That's a good way of putting it. The triune land, Trinity Land, yeah. It's high noon at the triune saloon. There you go. Yeah. High right. <laughs> noon at the triune saloon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very good. Yeah, of course, Angel. We pray for that. You know, um, when we talk about lifting the name, you know, of course, we had a very light, very late fellowship last night, and uh, I didn't get to until after midnight. And uh, but it was a good fellowship, and we we're we we're talking. Of course, you know, most of the people that are meeting now are kind of convinced that we're reaching, or shall we say, the climax of human events would be one way of putting it. As we as we approach, you know. Uh, really, uh, the times of culmination in, in Scripture, and we seem to be getting closer and closer. And uh, wait, what is this? What is this? Hold on, just a minute. Yeah, Knudsen. Uh, okay, uh, we'll pray for you too, Knudsen. Of course, I hope that's how you pronounce it, Knudsen. And also, Stephen. Yes. Can you please pray for the people in Canada? Turkey and Greece, because they all having fires. Oh, of course, yeah. And there's, yeah. there's fires going on in Washington, too, uh, outside mm -hmm. of Spokane. But the fire at uh, Kelowna has been really, really draconian. In British mm. Columbia has been very, well, very... they've attacked Greece, so they've attacked Turkey. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, you know, you know what it is written, right? That uh, you shall call fire down from heaven. Beast that rises out of the earth shall call fire down from heaven. It's one of the signs and wonders of his. And it's the third of the earth that will be burnt up. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah. Well, let us, let us, uh, we're, we've just about, we've gotten a lot of people here. I just want to make sure that we've got in at least our initial gathering here. Okay. Well, let's lift up and pray, if we can. Let's lift up and pray for people in these things. Heavenly Father, we come together as a group, together in one voice and in one spirit, to lift up our brothers and sisters before you. Father, we know you are a Yah who hears, who knows the prayers of his people, and that you are full of compassion and full of mercy long-suffering and as we lift our prayers to you not in expectation 
of our selfish needs, but rather for the glorification of your name on earth, that you would now consider our brother Shane, uh, not, uh, who's suffering in, a, in an hour of um, great distress, and that you would uh, lift him up in many, many respects. One, he calls upon your name in front of the enemy uh, boldly. Uh, may your name be glorified in him. And may your glory be seen by those who do not believe in you, do not know you, do not care about you, do not think you are relevant. And show yourself to them, Father, in a mighty way that your name would be on their lips as well as you do things to miraculously bring Shane back into health, Father. To restore him in every way from the inside out, that he would be healthy and well and be able to walk out of the situation and return home to his family. Father, we also lift up the other brothers and sisters in this group who are suffering, whether they're suffering from problems of the heart, problems of the lungs, problems of their body, problems in their bones and in their joints, pain and inordinate uh, arthritis and other suffering, Father, that you would relieve that pain now miraculously and restore them in a way that they can glorify you again. Father, it is written that you cannot be praised from the grave. And we seek to praise you here while we were here in this place, in these bodies, that you would give us voice that we might be able to lift up your name. And for those who are lifting up your name in uh, public settings, Father, like Angelo, as he goes forth into the triune saloon, Father, that you would give him courage that you would give him blessing and that his words would be well received by ears that are hungry to hear the truth. May your truth be known unto them, Father. We pray also for those people who are facing things like cancer and other things that the world tries to call upon us, Father. We pray for Knudsen in particular, that all of these ideas of cancer would be expelled from the body entirely, from the mind of the believer and into a non-existence that doesn't exist whatsoever among the believers, and that it's just cast out from one cast out and rebuked. Cancer is rebuked and cast out from us. Father, be with us in spirit and truth today as we lift up today's meaning to you, that we might be holy and sanctified before you, and that your word might come through, Father, and that we can hear the truth of the scripture, notwithstanding the difficulty of this teaching. Father, I pray you would bless this teaching today in particular and to bring us insight that we need to have to understand what is here. We thank you for this group, Father. We pray you bless it and keep it and that we might be, a, uh, again, a blessing to you in word and in deed. Thank you again, Father. We are going to lift these prayers to you, Father, knowing that you have made yourself manifest in this world making yourself, making your word flesh to tabernacle among us, that we might see and know you and to understand you and to see that our door into the heavens has been opened anew by the works of your hands on this earth. We praise you for this accomplishment. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's add the rest of the people here trying to come in. So I want to welcome all of you this morning to our Shabbat discussion. And 
And some of you, for some of you, it's afternoon, and for some of you, it's even evening. And I want to welcome you all here. I see we have our good brother Marcus with us, Marcus Ellis. Hi, Marcus. Good to see you, my friend. So glad you were here. Um, I have to tell you, you, you asked me about this word perturbation, you know, which is actually just a, a form of anger, if you will. It's kind of a frustration anger, if you will. And um, and so I've been looking at that and trying to get a, a, a good answer for you. I can't say as I have the full answer for you yet, but I have been looking at it to see if I can come up with something for you on uh, the meaning of that word. And um, But we have many things that are happening, you know, and of course, I would also, for you guys, I'd, a prayer, I'd appreciate prayers for a separate publishing group, you know, in our in our work that we do. Of course, we face many, many challenges, and we've been facing uh, a lot of challenges that are, have been given to us from the world. And uh, I mean, just to share some of the things with you, it was just several years ago that you know, we've had a great flooding of industry and manufacturing from the United States into China. And this began in the late 90s. Well, I think it was in 2018, uh, the Chinese came into America and they bought up all the pulp. And, you know, so pulp, uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with lumber mills, uh, you have a lot of wood that is, uh, you know, quality for uh, lumber. And typically, you're talking about hemlock, fir, uh, and pine, and cedar. And this wood is used for lumber because of the size of the log. The, the, uh, the log can be cut up into things like 6x6, 4x4, 2x4, 2x3, etc. And it becomes frame stick lumber. But for trees that are smaller than that, in particular things like cottonwood trees and other trees, and trees that are too small to be used for milling into lumber, they take this lumber and they convert it into pulp. And the pulp then is converted into paper. And typically what happens is when they convert it into paper, the paper is uh, not white, but the paper is wood colored. So once they convert it into paper, they have to bleach the paper to bleach it into white. And so this, this is what a paper mill does. And this is why paper mills oftentimes stink because you're smelling the chlorine that's being used to bleach wood into a color. Well, there were many, many paper mills in the United States prior to China buying up all of the pulp. But after China bought up all the pulp, about 80% of the paper mills in the United States closed, which is part of the reason why we had that toilet paper crisis. It's because the paper mills had all closed. Well, this greatly affected the publishing of books. And, you know, in, in the modern world, uh, you know, most Americans don't read at all. And, and the ones that do read typically read online and they don't read a book. And so the idea of buying a book has really, really faded. And it used to be that in Michigan, when we print the Sefer, there were six major book publishing plants. And they were publishing things like American history and publishing law books, publishing scholastic books uh, for all of the universities and so forth. Well, of those six, five of them have closed. And... 
only one remains. And in fact, in all of the United States, there is only one publishing place in all of the United States that can print the Sefer. No other place in the country can print it. Because no other place has the ability to do a, a hard binding and a web press with a sewn book. And one of the things about the Sefer that differs between us and say the Hallelujah Scriptures is number one, we print in a hardbound edition. And number two, we print using what's called the Smythe sewn technique. And sewing the binding is what retains the quality of the book for generations. And part of the reason we elected to do it this way is because unlike a fiction book or even a reference book, you know, you might read a reference book two or three times and you might occasionally page it open to see, you know, how I do this or how I do that. A cookbook might get a little more action. But when you're talking about scripture, it gets a lot of action. It's being read over and over and opened over and over and particularly if you're talking about a group that has studies in scripture, the book is being read a lot. And so we wanted something that was going to hold up and hold up very, very well. So we elected to go with a Smythe sewn binding. And literally they have sewing machines that sew together what's called signatures. And the signature is where you take a group of pages and you fold it over and then it's pierced and it is sewn in a group of signatures, one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And they sew all these signatures together until you get the whole book. And that's bound to a nylon backing via glue. And then they take that and glue a, a hardbound cover on top of that. Now, there's lots of other things that go into it, like the pressing of the book, the pressing of the cover. They have what's called a guillotine because the, the book itself comes out, it's all roughed edge because the paper is different sizes and they put it into this guillotine and it goes chunk, chunk and it cuts the book to a precise size and shape before they glue the cover on. So all this is a very elaborate process. But so in doing our large print, we could not get the large print done in the United States. There was no printing house that could print the large print edition, period, at all. So we had to take it offshore and we took it to Britain to have it printed in Britain. And the print house in Britain, although I love these people, and I've met with them three times. And you know, and the, the first time I met with them, just to give you an example, in order for us to do the large print collector's edition, I flew to Britain and quarantined in an eight by eight bedroom for 14 days so that I could go and meet with this printer in the middle of the pandemic. And that was at Stewart's house. And he and Angela were kind enough to open their house to me and be a host to me during the time of this quarantine. And when the quarantine was over, I was able to go out to Beckles and visit the printing place and to determine that they could in fact do a large print edition uh, in a collective size. And so we were able to do that. But they, you know, as was common in the UK, they suffered greatly, I mean, greatly from the pandemic. And they went from 56 employees at CPI Beckles to eight uh, during the course of 2021. And many of them had died actually. 
And so a lot of the management was then working the press and so on and so forth. And quite frankly, the press is a very old press. I believe the press that they use is a pre-World War II web press. And so they're kind of struggling to keep the old MG running, if you know what I mean. And uh, so at any rate, with the blessings of Yah and with the permission of Yah and with the sacrifice of my friends in Africa, I was able to travel to Africa. And I traveled to Africa because Yah asked me to. It's a difficult thing. But he did ask us to go. It wasn't in my playbook. But when we went there, and we're staying with Chris and Melissa, uh, who I love dearly, uh, I was talking with Chris. I said, Chris, I wonder if there's any book publishers in Africa. And so we went to a Christian bookstore and we went in this bookstore and all the Bibles that were on the wall were all printed in China. And we're looking at that going, hmm, well, we're not printing in China. We've already decided that we decided that a long time ago, we weren't going to print in China, even though they have virtually all the paper that used to be in the United States. And we said, we're not going to print in China. So I wanted to see if there was any possibility. Well, anyway, I look up and I find, well, there is a publisher, a couple of publishers in Cape Town. And we were going to Cape Town for the end of the trip for conferences. And so I said, well, let's see if we can make arrangements. So I called this fellow. I said, are you a printer? Yeah, we're a printer. Well, he says, you should come and visit and see that we're not Mickey Mouse. That was, that was the language you see that we're not a Mickey Mouse shop. And I said, okay, all right. And I, so I told, I told Chris, I said, they claim not to be Mickey Mouse. What do you think? He said, well, let's, let's see if we can visit them. So our Thursday conference in Cape Town canceled. And so we have the whole day. So uh, well, let's go out and visit Gideon out at Cape Town Printers. And so we went out there and to say that it was not Mickey Mouse was the understatement of the year. We get out there and find that this is the number one book printing facility in the entire Southern Hemisphere. And that they have an operation that was just absolutely extraordinary. And so it was maybe four times larger than the book printer in, in England. And they have a state-of-the-art web press that is less, I think it's seven years old. They bought it from Germany. The quality controls are, are extremely high. We watched the web press in action, rejecting anything that was flawed, automatically do it. And they have uh, you know, the automatic binding machines. And then they had, I think they had eight people standing in a line doing visual quality control. So in addition to the stuff being having quality control coming through the computer, it was also done here. So we met with a fellow named, uh, in addition to meeting Gideon, who was fantastic. We also met with a guy named Aubrey, who he had retired. And uh, when he retired, his wife died shortly thereafter. And a lot of you may, may know this in our group, but uh, typically when a man is uh, older and his wife dies, he doesn't survive it. I think 60, 70% of the cases, the man is dead within a year and a half. And so here's Aubrey, his wife died, and he was mourning and grieving. And he was like, well, what am I going to do? And he decided, well, one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to retire. Because I'm not going to sit around here doing nothing and moping, you know, 
And so he went back to work. Well, he went back to work the year that we happened to walk in there. And he'd been in publishing for 47 years. So he took a look at our book and he was like, hmm, well, hmm, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, this is how we do it here. Our signatures are larger, which makes for a more evenly printed book, and blah, 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 blah. And then they showed us the paper they were using, which was a very high quality paper. And so I looked at Gideon. I said, Gideon, look, you guys are in Africa. So freight's going to cost us a fortune. So what I need from you is I need first, word, first world quality at a third world price. And so Gideon says, well, look. You guys want to if you guys want to use your specialty paper here and make your book here, well, then you're going to have to buy an entire semi carton full of paper, or we're not going to be able to do it. Well, that's about twice as much as we need for a, a complete run of the Severn. It's like a whole really, we got to buy, you know, we're going to have to buy eighty thousand dollars worth of paper, really, up front. And he said, well, maybe there's something we can work out where we can lay this this way and do this this way and do it that way. And I'm like, yeah, well, those, those are some pretty good ideas, Gideon. So let's see what we can do. Well, anyway, they waived all of that stuff and they gave us a quote to be able to do the books. And so we're trying to get our large print printed now in South Africa. And with Yah's blessing, we're going to be able to print and be able to handle this. But you can see that we're going to be kind of at risk. And you have to remember, you guys got to keep this in mind. Our costs to print the Sefer have gone up 40% in the last two years. 40%. But you don't see the price of the book going up to you at all. The price of the book is the same that it has been since 2012. Okay. Price has not gone up to you at all. So we have absorbed all of this inflation that has been coming in from, uh, from the Biden regime. And quite frankly, it's beginning to take its toll. So, you know, we can, we're, we're continuing to work and to do the best we can to be stewards of Yah's word. Um, but I would appreciate if you guys can to just pray for the company a little bit when it, when it comes into your prayer life, if you would, to just pray for the company, that would be greatly appreciated. And recognize that, you know, I trust in Yah in all things. I think you guys know that. I trust in Yah in all things. And his work is our work to the best that we can do it. And in these times, you know, like Angela was speaking, he was saying he's getting ready to go into the triune saloon, you know, high noon in the triune saloon. <laughs> That's such a great way to put it. But, you know, when we talk about these things and going forward to lift up the name of Yahweh. Uh, these are those times. These are those times. And a lot of people can say a lot of things, but it's better said by Mashiach, who said at the end of chapter 17 in the gospel of john i have declared your name unto them and will declare it that the love of you that is in me might be in them and i in them to declare the name of yahweh to another person is to declare the love of yahweh not to declare uh, oh i've got extra knowledge that you don't have 
or I'm smarter than you are, or I'm a better biblical student than you are. To declare the name of Yahweh is to declare the love of Yahweh to a person. Okay? So keep that in mind when you walk into the triune saloon, that you're there to declare the love of Yah to them. Now, you know, it's written in Jeremiah 44. I will take my name from your lips to be never spoken again in the land of Egypt. And he said this to the house of Yahudah, who went into Mitzrayim in disobedience to Yah. And when we talk about Mitzrayim, what does Revelation say about the situs of Mashiach's crucifixion? It says he was crucified in Sodom and Egypt. And what most people will recognize is that Yasser Arafat, who was the very prolific Palestinian leader for years, was in fact Egyptian. And in fact, most of the people living in the Gaza Strip are Egyptian. So it kind of gives you an indication you know, and the going of Yahudah into Egypt was not forgiven by Yah. And Yah said, if Judah is going to go into Mizraim, then I'm going to take my name from their lips, that they will not be able to pronounce it again. And you can see that this is what we have heard ever since. Okay. Hey, Marcus, did you have something you wanted to add here this morning before we get started? Yes, dear brother, thank you so much for your wonderful work that you do. And thank you for all traveling to the ends of the earth to get this printed. Every day I talk to people about the work and it's just amazing. There's so few people that understand what it is. By the way, back on the other subject, I know the English for perturbation, but I was looking for the Hebrew word just because if you- Yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm still seeking, Marcus, trying to give you okay. the right word. I was just going to tell you, I, I so value your work to travel to the ends of the earth to get this word out. As I look at the book of Enoch, it talks about so many things that nobody knows today, especially the people that going to churchianity. But in 11, chapter 11, this, in those days, I will open the treasures of blessing that are in the heavens that I may cause them to descend upon the earth and all the works upon all the works in the labor of man. Peace and equity shall associate with the sons of men all the days of the world and every generation of it. I just speak that over you, over your work, the beautiful passages. There's nothing like this. As a third generation teacher, I can't tell you how important it is to have a physical copy in our hands. And I'm so glad that your people understand the difference because having something online is nice, but you can't mark it. And you can't remember where you've been. So I just know this stuff of like even that very chapter I've been talking about. I just mark everything so I can see what I was reading and I can remember what I was reading and I can apply it to this part. It's not to apply it to everybody else. It's to apply it to me. And that's why amen, it's so, amen, huh? I so love what you're doing. And thank you for traveling to the ends of the world to get this right because it makes a big difference to all the people here and to all the people that are coming. I think I talk about this every single day to new people and they've never heard of it. And just, you know, going through the discussion of Aleph and Toph and what it actually means, the hieroglyphics kind of continuation from Egypt. 
and how precious this is. And then to tell them, go, go order it, go order it. And I just love to help people. This is so good. Thank you, sir, for what you're doing. I'm not kidding. This is spectacular. Well, well, thank you, Marcus. But I have to tell you, I have to give thanks to Yah, because of course it is it is Yah's destination and Yah's inspiration and and uh, Yah's call. I mean, you know, I mean, I'll tell you point blank. We didn't know what we were doing when we got into this thing. We had no idea. I mean, it was like, well, let's see here. We we don't we think that this other stuff is not getting it right. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that people should be reading, and why aren't they reading it? And uh, you know, and so we we just prepared, we were initially prepared the book for our Bible study. And that was it. It was going to be prepared for our Bible study. And it got to a point where I couldn't get them home, right? I printed and I couldn't get them home. Chris Mack, how are you doing, brother? Shalom, Doc, and shalom to everybody. Ah, blessed. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Um, Doc, I just want to, okay. yeah, amen. Thank you. You too. So um, I want to discuss something before we start quickly. And that is um, in the portion, we see often the relation to Yasharel. So you will not do this because it's abomination in Yasharel. Or uh, don't have these people there. Or don't put up with this nonsense because it hurts Yasharel. And um, this is the, the, the point is that, as Marcus has said, and uh, David often says, and so many of us say, is the name is so vitally important. It's not to bash anybody with the name, but it is to reveal the name to people so that they can also, as you just said, understand the love that Yah has for his people, because when, he, when my people who are called by my name Amen. shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I shall hear them from heaven and heal their land. And that leads me to another point that if we are Yasharel because of the Mashiach whom we believe in, whom, as um, James said, did not even call himself good, but called his father in heaven good. Then we must we must really understand the gravitas of this name and whom we are named after and whom we 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 fall into, or rather grafted into the root, which is the Messiah. And um, and 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 bless people in this walk. And and I think. So many times in this walk, we see people who are Torah observant, if you like, uh, attacking people. And that's not the stance that we must be known for. Because if you see in this Torah portion, it's, it's if you do these abominable things, it affects the lump. It's not the individual. So when we see here that you shall not do this in Yasharel and take this woman or this man because of these reasons, because it's an abomination in Yasharel. That means it's not about just the individuals. It is about the collective. And I think that's something that we always miss. We miss. And, and you know, Yasha, I think, reiterates this whole point of the collective 
the collective in that we are part of his body. So I think we, we, we got to really be careful with what we say and what we say about people. And, you know, we're all in a different place. And as Marcus has said, he, he meets people and he talks to people whom are all of a walk. Maybe they need help or they have not realized maybe the full of the fullness of the truth of the word because of what we've been taught in the past. But we need the grace and we need the, the humility to lead people into the truth with love and not hurting people and, um, and attacking people. I think that's so important for us to understand. Yeah, I agree with that. And it is when you look at the prophets, you'll see the prophets talking about the work of the kingdom. And this is what they speak of. And rarely do you see any personal attacks. I mean, there was something that happened in Amos where, you know, a guy comes up to Amos and says, aren't you from the Southern Kingdom? Why don't you take your nonsense and your noise and go back to where you came from and shut your mouth up here? And Amos looks at him and says, well, your wife's going to be a prostitute in the streets and you're going to die early. And, you know, and but rarely do you see that kind of a thing. Most of the time, what you see mm. is the prophets teaching about the collective and they concentrate not on what the sins and errors of man, which are replete. And of course, now we have the world really falling into a great darkness and a great confusion and uh, people not knowing anything what to do. But, but, to, but they talk about the working of Yah. They talk about what Yah sees. And what and whether or not Yah's wrath is kindled, or whether or not He will bestow a blessing and and restoration, and redemption and mercy, long suffering, these things, and it's discussing the character of Yah. They concentrate on the character of Yah, and concentrate on the work that Yah is doing on the earth. And you know, this is so we talked a little bit about it last night, but. What Yah is doing on the earth right now is really, really important. Even though we see uh, the wicked yes. imaginations of man, yes. and we see a lot of wickedness in the world right now, there is a lot of murder, there's a lot of genocide, mm -hmm. there is a lot of uh, imprisoning and men rising up to try to assert the control of Satan over earth. And But Yah knows all of this. He knows all of this. And all, there is none of this that is outside his vision, or, or for that matter, outside his plan. Mm. And that even the most wicked among us, nonetheless, work the will of Yahweh. They work the will of Yahweh, because in their wickedness, judgment comes. And it comes to those who have walked into a curse. You know, Deuteronomy 28, which we're going to get to at some point in our Torah portion, is still applicable today and and those who have walked out of yasharel into uh apostasy and those who have walked out saying yah no longer hears yah no longer sees yah no longer cares and we're going to do what what we think is right in our own eyes and we're going to lift up a secular world well judgment is upon that world now judgment is upon that world in a very very significant way and 
it's moving very quickly. So yeah, I think that's a good thing. And when we talk, and like I say, today's Torah portion is going to be a difficult Torah portion. And I want I'm going to discuss each one of these precepts kind of individually. And and before we begin the Torah portion, I want you, I want to remind you of the words of Mashiach when the scribes and Pharisees came to him and said, "Well, Rabbi, a Moshe gave us a certificate of divorce." And Mashiach says to them. I tell you the truth, Moshe suffered to give you a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. But I tell you the truth that in the beginning, it was not so. Now, this is an extremely important concept to understand what Mashiach is saying. That for those, you know, like for instance, let me give you an example of the forest for the trees. The Rambam. Maimonides, he starts his 613 mitzvot count in Exodus 5. He doesn't believe that there were any mitzvot that existed in the book of Genesis, that there was a Torah that existed in the book of Genesis, that there was a Torah that preceded Moshe's Exodus. There most assuredly was a Torah that preceded Moshe's Exodus, and it is a Torah that Moshe in some places contradicted, as Mashiach points out. I tell you the truth, Moshe gave you this law because of the hardness of your hearts. In the beginning, it was not so. Haven't you read that Yah created them, male and female he created them, that they should be united as one flesh, and what Yah has put together, let no man put asunder. This was the the idea and the Torah concept of Yah. And this concept was binding, but Moshe suffered to give them certificates of divorce because of the hardness of their heart. And we're going to see that you're going to see, you're going to see that in today's Torah portion. And so I'll talk about those things with, with particularity, Chris, but you're so right that we're talking about, remember that Moshe, and John Barber brought this up, I think really eloquently, Moshe is herding cats. He's got 2 million people in the wilderness, right? Now, you know, I mean, I'm telling you, you put 50 people in a room and you're going to have five fist fights. And, you know, so it's very, very difficult to put people in people of independent mind into a room and say, let us all govern together and go in the same direction. Was there a vote? Did anybody vote on Moshe to become the leader of the House of Israel? Was there ever a vote? There was no vote. Was there a vote that Aaron should become the priest? There was no vote. Was there a vote that Joshua should become his successor? There was no vote. There was no vote. There was no democracy in the, in the wilderness. This isn't what happened. Yah raised up his leader. Yah raised him up. Yeah. Yah benefited them with the 10 plagues and the blessings and the calling out of the wilderness and brought the people out of this pagan animal worship kingdom into a dry wilderness when they looked at Moshe and said, what have you done? You brought us out here for us to die. Now, were they, were they wrong about what they said? No, they, they were not wrong about what they said because ultimately they all, all but two of them did die in fact in the wilderness, but they walked out in faith, not knowing that springs of water would spring up from the ground. And the manna would be poured down from heaven. 
and the quails would be brought across into their life. All of these things were happening. And so when we look at this, and, I, and I'll tell you, I'm just going to tell you this. If ever there was a false pagan god, it is democracy. Yah says, thou shalt not kill. And the Democrat says, let's vote on that. Yah says, thou shalt not steal. And the Democrat says, let's vote on that. Yah says, you shall not commit adultery. And the Democrat says, let's vote on that. As if the vote and the will of the majority is superior to the edicts of Yah. Really. Well, Doc, I, I just wanted to bring up one more point, and that's the point of prophecy. And I'd like us to discuss that. Uh, well, I'd like you to discuss that in 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 a bit more length. But we, you know, we are warned over and over again of false prophets. And the point is that, especially in this group and our Torah believers and our Torah Torah observant people, is you know we're going to people who, first of all, do not know the names, right? Now, I'm red flagging. Now, please, I don't want people to, um, you know, to get all defensive or anything. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just red flagging th certain things because this is a reality that we have to, we have to think about. You know, there, there, there's certain things in this world that, um, th that, well, Satan is always trying to pull the, the, the wool over our eyes and he and there's very cunning ways of doing that but um the prophecy is 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 a point that we have to um i think we, we must study it a little bit more intensely and not just take a prophet's word for it um first point i think about a prophet is money if it's about money and you know join my patreon and do whatever I mean, that's a red flag to me, to me. Okay. And now, please, I know that people are going to bash that, but it's fine. I don't mind. Um, the second of all is the name. If, if, if a prophet is not using the true names, to me, the study of the word is not there, or you haven't researched what is going on, because um, that's where we have been a couple of years back, but we've, we, we've, progress from there, not because we are special, but because Yah has put in our heart a yearning for to find out more truth, if you like. And, 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 and this truth has become a reality which strengthens us, which brings in things that are above our understanding, I believe. Second, and then third of all is, is the, the, the Sabbath, the Sabbath of, and that includes the feasts. You know, if 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 people are going by uh, uh, by the year beginning in January, for example. Now, I do not understand how a prophet can prophesy the things of Yah and not know when Yah's calendar starts and ends. To me, that doesn't make sense. If you are, if if a prophet is saying, "Well, in 2024, this is going to happen," well, you know. That might be that that it might be in that in the time to follow if if that's what he means. But I think it, we should really start working because this Torah portion and that's what's happened in my life 
is this Torah portion has brought me onto a calendar which does not belong to this world. It belongs to Yah and his creation. And that calendar and that timing is there in the word and it's written in the stars. And if we, if, if, if the people that claim to know him and listen to him and hear his voice every day are not going by these things, I am just weary. So please don't, don't be angry with me. That's my own personal opinion. And then another one is the word in action and the judgment thereof. If a prophet is saying that, you know, America is going to be ruled by the red dragon, for example. And I mean, that I could have told you just by listening to the news and seeing a couple of podcasts. Mm. And I could have told you that a year ago. It's not a prophet that's speaking there, in my opinion. Um, and he's saying, yes, and they, they do not share um, uh, leadership. Well, you know, that's a false, that to me is a false prophecy because then you do not understand the word. It's not because they are invading the people that, of the land or, you know, it's because we have not stuck to Yah's ordinance, ordinances. I mean, we haven't stuck to his precepts and we haven't guarded his way. And therefore, we have fallen into error. So come back to him. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Well, what are your wicked ways? Your wicked ways are that you're following Rome and you're not looking at Yah's ways from his Torah. And I think that's something just to think about when you are listening to prophecies. And, I, you know, those are just certain little things that I pick up quite a lot in, um, in, in people's conversations about, about prophecies and they want to share this prophecy and that prophecy. You know what? The best prophecy is the word. And Yah can teach anyone um, anything uh, if you just have time for it. And I think um, we, we, we mustn't stick to, the, to man. And, and, you know, to look to man as if they are going to be your savior or to right. look to a person. This is teach. an extremely important point, Chris, because people right now are, you know, they're talking about these big debates that we're on TV, right? Well, who's going to be your man in 2024? Well, my man in 2024 is Yahusha, just like he was in 2023, just like he was in 2022, just like he was in 2020. And to vote for a man. Amen. It, Hallelujah. Yeah, to, to, thank you, Raina. To vote for a man is to, is to take the same steps that were taken in 1 Samuel 8. We want a king over us. And Yah says to Shemuel, he says, they have not rejected you, Shemuel. They have rejected me. They have rejected me. And, you know, I, I'm at a point anymore, in, anymore, Chris, where, you know, the trappings of the world really mean nothing. They just mean nothing. And we're told over and over again in these prophets, and you're right. I don't know how many of these guys I've heard. They're all linked up to a, a gold and silver salesman now, you know. And so you go along listening to them. Well, you need to prep. Well, how do I need to prep? Well, you need to buy gold and silver. 
even though scripture tells us that that stuff is going to be worthless. And I forget who it was that was saying it. Somebody came out and said, if you look at it, when the dollar goes to zero, silver and gold go to zero too. There's no buyer. There's no buyer. And so these are things that are, you know, that are being said. And so where do we, where do we put our trust? Where do we put our treasure? <laughs> we put our treasure in the faith of Yah and what Yah is going to do. Because he's going to do miraculous things. And the question is, do we have the faith to follow him and obey him when he says, I want you to do this? Do we have the faith to do that? Do we have the strength to do that? Or will we be, will we shrink back in fear and cowardice saying, I don't want to leave my comfort zone here. Even though you may die in your comfort zone and the wilderness looks ominous and foreboding and dry and no water and, and, and none of this and none of that. Yet they walked into the wilderness before they stepped out into the wilderness before in believing that Moshe had told them that Yah had said, let us go out into the wilderness that we might worship our Elohim. And so, yeah, these are these are very big points. And you're right. I mean, for instance, if you have somebody who is prophesying and they're not Sabbath keepers, they're not keeping the Sabbath. Well, they're not in the rhythm of Yah. And if they're not in the rhythm of Yah, what are they talking about? You know, and as somebody put in the chat over here, you know, eating, eating bacon, hanging out uh, during Easter and then, you know, uh, uh, and then teaching the tithe. Right over and over again, you know, and, you know, we talked about this last night, you know, there's a mega church that's opening up in our area and it's the biggest church in the whole area. And it over, when you first come into the, into our town, the very first thing is you see this mega church with all its glass looking out over the city. Now they bought this building on credit. And so they're desperate to make church payments and so they're actively recruiting people in any way they can and of course it's the whole you need to be a member you need to be committed to the tithe you need to blah 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 on and on it goes and they're going to do the things necessary to get people in the door and so they were asking me well what do you think and i said well one thing you could do is you could have easter egg hunts four times a year you know that'll bring the people in right <laughs> you know you know and and the problem is, is that when, if you lure people in with false doctrine and false teaching, you've got a false church, period. And you can try to say, well, we'll straighten it out after we get them here. After, after they picked up their Easter eggs, then we'll straighten them out. They never do. They continue to teach them the trappings of Rome, the worshiping of Ishtar, the fertility rite of Nimrod, uh, you know, and, 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 and the, the, the calendar of Gregory. And they go on and on and on and on. And, and the destruction of the Shabbat. And, you know, we talked about this in, in one of our classes, that when you look at the edicts of the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, and so on and so forth, you find that in to create the religion, they were completely anathema to the Ten Commandments. They were anathema to the Ten Commandments. And when you look at, the, at, at their attacking the Ten Commandments, I mean, I'm just going to say it. I'm just I'm going to say it here. The very first attack they make is against the commandment that says, I am Yahweh Elohim. Oh, no. 
we're going to remove that name right off the bat. I am Baali Hashem, right? I am Baali God, the Babylonian deity. And let us have every English Bible switch over to I am Baali God. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to tell you, it's heresy. It is heresy. It's heresy. And not only that, but it's blasphemy because you have brought the name of Yahweh to nothing. You brought it to nothing. And to, and to, you know, we just saw the passage. Somebody put it up in the chat right here. And it's, it's out of, of course, Jeremiah 44. And I'm going to read it in the chat. Let me see if I can find it here. A lot of stuff in the chat. Just a minute, back it up here. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Just a minute. But when you, but in the chat it says, "I will take my name out of the mouths of all of those in Yehuda that are in Egypt forever." And so when you see that this happened at the work of Yah, Yah took his name away from them. Yah took his name away from them. And they came to the community of believers in Mashiach and said, you will do what we tell you to do. And you will not put forth his name in your manuscript. You will not put forth his name in your manuscript. We can't speak it and you can't speak it. And when you go back and you look at the life of of uh, Miles Coverdale, who was the great English translator whose name goes without mention. He worked on the 1560 Geneva. He crafted the 1539 Great Bible. And, and his work was what was plagiarized by King James. He was an obeisance to the Jews who told him, you cannot use the name. And you go back and you listen. He says, oh, well, in respect for their desires, we went to Lord God. And Isaiah 65 tells us that God is a Babylonian deity. And so when you see this idea of, and it's not like it's impossible to pronounce Elohim. It's possible to pronounce Elohim. Anybody can pronounce it. But they, they said, we're not going to be able to use that. We have to switch over to God because that's what the Jews do. G underscore D. Why is it underscore D? Because the true letter there is A, not O. And so with, with this being said, we can see that there is a lot to learn and a lot to come away from. And if you don't come away from it, and you say, well, one is like the next. One text is like the next. Well, they're not. I mean, let me just give you some really hard examples why the texts are not the same. In virtually every English Bible, in the book of Acts, Peter says, Mashiach was the son of David in the line of David. Prove it. You cannot prove it in the King James, in the New King James, in the 
English, of the ESB, in the NIV, in the NKJV, in the ASB, in the NASB, you cannot prove that Mashiach is in the line of David. You cannot. And so Tobias Singer can come walking into your church and tell you what kind of fools you've actually been. Because if you look at Matthew 1, there are many women that are raised in that genealogy in Matthew 1. Bathsheba is raised there. Rahab is raised there. Uh, Ruth is raised there. They're named in that litany and not counted. And yet suddenly we're going to count Miriam at the end, the wife of Joseph? No, the genealogy in all of those Bibles says that you're talking about Joseph, the husband of Mary. And the genealogy in Luke 3 is talking about Joseph, the supposed father of Mashiach. That's one and the same person. And the two genealogies are different. So you have to conclude in your Bible that somebody's lying to you. Either Matthew's lying to you or Luke is lying to you. You have to conclude that. You have no choice because they are in direct contradiction to one another. And when your pastor stands up in front of the church and says, this is the inerrant word of God, ask him to compare Matthew 1 to Luke 3 and show him that there is, in fact, an error. Then they go into these long extrapolations. Well, the implication of Joseph, the supposed father, means that you're really talking about Mary. Well, that's not what the word says. That's not what the language says. Then, in your average English Bible, Matthew 23, 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What they tell you to do, diligently do. That's what it says. That means if you're following the Gospel of Matthew, you have a duty to read the Talmud. You have a duty to read the Mishnah. You have a duty to read the Gemara. You have a duty to not walk too far on the Sabbath. You have a duty to wear certain clothes. You have a duty to put on your shoes the right foot first and the left foot second. You have a duty to go to the bathroom the way they dictate in the Mishnah. These are important things. They're in the text, but there is nothing more important than the fact that somebody elected to strike through the name of Yahweh and give you Lord instead, which in Hebrew is Baal. And when you see that, you have to ask yourself the question, what am I doing here? What am I doing here lifting up the name Baal in place of the word Yahweh? You know, when you look at the scripture, Leviticus provides that you shall not blaspheme the name of Yahweh. Well, then you have to look at that word. What does it mean to blaspheme? How many of you have been told that the only unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the Ruach HaKodesh? Right? That's the writing in the New Testament. The only unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the Ruach HaKodesh. Well, what is blasphemy? What is that? 
when you go back and you read in the Old Testament, it's the word nekav, nekav. Now, it's very interesting because nekava, the noun, means female. Nekav, the verb, to blaspheme, means to pierce, to strike through. So when you strike through the name, the yod he vav and you strike through it, and you say Adonai, or you strike through it and you say Hashem, or you strike through it and you say Lord, are you blaspheming the name? And in blaspheming the name, what happens? Well, you lose the focus of 100% of the text. You lose its focus. You lose its meaning. You lose its point. Because when the temple was built by Solomon, it wasn't built to house Yah. It was built to house his name. When the second temple was constructed, it wasn't there to house Yah. It was there to house his name that this would be the place where Yah had placed his name. You shall not sacrifice in any place where Yah has not placed his name. Moshe says, I will publish his name. Zechariah says, I will declare his name. Psalm 22, 22, David, I have declared his name unto the assembly. But somebody came out, Hillel the elder, Samai, usurpers, Edomites claiming to be Jews, came out and said, you shall not say the name. You shall put a fence around the name. Why did he say it? Because it had been taken from his lips by Yah himself. So these things do become, I think, uh, critically important, critically important. All right, let's take a couple more things here before we get into the Torah portion. Felix, Melissa, did you guys want to say some things here? Yes, hi. Um, just everything that you've been saying and that Chris had mentioned and then your story about going to Africa and, and everything, you know, it just underscores how special and how... Um, how blessed we are to be here. You know, each one of us have, have joined together here to be in this journey. And, and I just thought, um, it, I saw in the chat that Marcus was willing to, uh, do a song. I thought maybe that would be appropriate considering how, how much each of us have been blessed by this fellowship and how, you know, we've all been part of this body and how miraculous it is that we're here at such a time as this. And amen. Well, I hope Marcus is still with us that he'd be willing to do that, Alyssa. And we'll see if 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 he's if he's still here. If Marcus is still here, maybe he can do that. I lost connection for a while, so I don't know. Oh, okay. Maybe he lost connection. Yeah, it's possible that he did. Well, let's hope he returns. And if he does, we'll get him to play some music for us. Okay. Right. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Okay. And uh Angela, did you want to add something up front here? Yes, thank you. Um, I had a two a question and then a, a, just a testimony, real brief. Um, 
if you were looking for any more uh, volunteers, I would like to, if it's possible, I have the privilege to read part of the Torah today. If you oh, you'd like to read part of the Torah? Excellent. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, the thing that I wanted to share was, uh, and again, this is not in a spirit of criticism. It's just the reality I live in. My uh, mate, my wife is currently one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And I had had a history with that years ago to understand. So I know, you know, from the inside, so to speak. When you were talking about piercing the name, when you look in the Sefer and you're phonetically writing in Y-A-H-U-A-H, in other words, this is how to help you pronounce it. In other words, Yahuwah, Yahuwah, or Yahuwah. So when you look at that, but that's not seven letters. yod Hey wah Hey, this is divine, you know, yod Hey wah Hey. When 1280, when Ramondas Martini, as a Spanish monk, okay, so representing Rome, is looking at the word, the vowel points that the Masoretes are putting in, the Nikib, instead of saying the name, we're going to do, uh, you should hear say Adonai, Adonai. Or over here, maybe you should say Elohim. Keep people mixed up away from that name. And so in his reading, he adds three letters to that name. So that's a piercing in itself. So when you're having uh, like the letter J, which was non-existent, changing the wad to a vav, well, you know, whatever. But the point is saying the name Jehovah is just as much as a piercing. And you really could be invoking another deity, quite frankly. It's very, very dangerous. And it's not like just saying like, well, you know, because I was questioned about this, say, well, you know, in the Sefer, you're looking, I said, no, but that's not the spelling. That's just helping you to understand yod ya a yawa It's phonetic, in other words. It's, it's helping you transliterate a name to pronunciate it in English when you're looking at this. But that's not the same thing as adding in three letters based upon something that's already piercing his name by removing it, the Masoretes, who hated the Messiah. And then you've got Catholicism here represented by a Spanish monk who's putting in, reading it this way as they were, as if they were four consonants adding an EOA into in the middle of this. Now you got seven letters. So that's a lot different than just trying to learn how to phonetically pronounce something. Does that make sense? I don't know if I was. Oh yeah. 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 And so we talk about the phonetic pronunciation. Josephus, who is the last ear witness said it was not pronounced as four consonants. Pronounce this four vowels. And these are the four vowels. Yod pronounced as E. Hat pronounced as A. Bob pronounced as U. Hat pronounced as A. For instance, the A in Torah, the A in Sarah the ah in Shalomah, not pronounced ha, ah, the oo, as in, uh, well, let me think of Yahuda, Yahuda. And if you have Yahuda, why is it Yahuda? But this is not Yahua. And so what we see here is e, ah, oo, ah, pronounced in this direction. E a u a, but no break between the vowel sounds. E a u a, e a u a, e a u a, e a u a. Then we spelled out e a u a, e a u a. Okay. And 
So with that being said, yeah, the the and when the Spanish monks they did not say Jehovah, they said Hey Jehovah, right. Jehovah, right? And right. the Masoretes <coughs> intentionally distorted the pronunciation. Intentionally distorted the pronunciation. And it's the same thing. I get this over and over again with people wanting to say Yeshua or Yahushua or Yahuashua or I mean, I've heard all kinds of pronunciations. And then when you look at the Strong's Concordance, the way it's given, they do everything they can to keep you from understanding the name <laughs> of the original pronunciation. His name was Usha. And Moshe said, you are Yah's agent. You are Yah Usha. Yah Usha. And, you know, yeah, it's the same thing when you're looking at Hosea as in Hoshea. Well, that's just the Masoretes telling you with Anika to pronounce it this way one way and then pronounce it over this way another way. It's just confusion. It's always confusion. It yeah. should be Husha, and then you simply add the Ode. And this is profound, by the way. The mighty outstretched arm now attached to the Husha. He's going in. It's just so significant. It's like like Sarai or Sarai to Sarah, Sarah. Right? We well, are adding the Ruach, the spirit, Abra, Abraham, the, the breath, the that's breath. Exactly I mean, that right. the breath is added to the name. That's exactly yes. right. And yes. so, you know, and, and, and so I understand the people, and somebody said in the chat that they, they brought the name to their friends, and instead of their friends experiencing the love of Yah and understanding it, they dumped him as a friend. We're not talking to you anymore. It's a qualifier, isn't it? It really is. But you, but you declared it in heaven, it was heard. And that's a wonderful thing, that declaration sharing that, because there's no more gray area with that, is there? We can see it as we're getting closer, print out, use it. It's it no that's right. Yeah. I, say, I mean, when I was in, in this area of Washington, that's now been burnt, you know, with directed energy weapons. The last time I was there, a pastor friend of mine said, we're going to go preach in Colville. And I said, okay. And so we get, we get there. And he says, we're staying with, we're staying with a friend. Okay, great. So we get to the friend's house and he takes the bedroom and it's like, well, where am I sleeping? Well, you know, we'll blow up a mattress for you over here. At Dan. <laughs> I was like, okay. So this is kind of how it went. Then when it came time to preach in the church, he preached for an hour and a half and he left me three minutes, you know? And <laughs> so I told the congregation, I said, well, look, I have three minutes. And so I'm, I'm not going to share anything with you other than the name. And that's it. I'm going to share the name with you. And that's that. You know, we, we hear, you know, you, particularly you get into evangelical churches. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Your name is high and exalted. Your name is lifted up. Lord, we lift your name on high. We lift your name, your name, your name. Your name is this. Your name is a mighty tower. Your name. And finally, I just asked all the pastors, what, what is his name? Since you're lifting it up. We've had 20 minutes of worship now about the name. What is it? They were all silent. They couldn't answer. Yeah. And so finally, I just looked at him. I said, well, look, I'm going to tell you what the name is. You know? And and so I did. And I and there was I wasn't asking anybody to say, okay, everybody repeat after me and say the name. Or let's everybody, you know, let's everybody figure this out. Nothing. I just said, I'm going to share this with you, and then I'm leaving. See ya. Here's the name. I'll talk to you later. There you go. 
this reference that you made, I'm looking at right now in the Jewish War on Josephus Book 5, Chapter 5. It's in paragraph 7, about three quarters of the way down. It's just a sentence. It says, talking about the garb of the high priest, it says, Mitre also a fine linen encompassed his head, which was tied by a blue ribbon, about which there was another golden crown, and which was engraven the sacred name. It consists of four vowels. Four vowels. Bingo. From the last ear witness. What do the Masoretes teach you? <laughs> Consonants, right? Yeah. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. Right. So that's what they teach you. I got swampland in Florida. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, but um, I've studied enough where <laughs> I, was, I was able to clean my boots off. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. It's called bail droppings. <laughs> <laughs> bail droppings over at the Triune Saloon. Okay. All right. Thanks, Angelo. Hey, hey, uh, Brian, you want to uh, get in on this a little bit there, brother? Yes, please. I, when you were talking earlier, and I, I'm probably going to forget half the stuff I want to talk about because <laughs> my memory is not that great. But anyway, uh, um, when you were talking about um, you know, the, the Moses uh, suffered. And what came to me was a picture of a person in school where are we going to just get by and with C's or are we going to go and use a, put our whole heart in it and get A's? And uh, that's kind of a picture of what Yahushua is kind of talking about. Um, to me, again, man is looking to man for a crutch. They're looking for someone to lead them, another Moses to lead them. That's the problem. That's not what Yah wants. In fact, he's going to get rid of that. It's the hot, cold, and lukewarmness. That lukewarmness is going, he always wanted, according to Exodus 19.6 and Re uh, Revelation 5.10, he always wanted a kingdom of priests who are going to go the extra mile to do it and study and do it themselves to have a relationship with Yah. And I had a close sister friend of mine, I hope she don't mind me sharing this, um, have a word that says, follow me. And then when I heard Chris's wife's uh, dream, uh, Melissa, um, uh, about that uh, she shared here, about on one side you got Christianity, on the other side you got Hebrews, but in the middle, you, you said, you know, you, you know I picture of a picture of a, a Red Sea crossing. In the middle, it says, follow me. You follow the sign. So again, um, we need to follow him. We need to put our whole heart, circumcised heart, into following him and stop. And it's, it's okay to listen to teachers, but you still have to do your own research and digging in the word. And uh, the comment you made about um, Moses' seat, my understanding, I could be wrong, that when they sat on Moses' seat, they only read scripture. It's when they got off the seat they interjected their own man-made traditions. He says, "You make man's uh, you make you, your man's traditions make God's commandments of no effect." So again, when they got off the seat, is their commentary of the Talmud and everything else? They were interjecting. It was at that time it was uh, oral. My understanding, the Talmud was, and not written down. But now it's written down. They were interjecting, and Yah definitely come in their face about it. He says, "You, I'm paraphrasing. You make man's traditions." Yahuwah's no uh, commandments, no effect. And he that's what I see. The picture he's trying to show us there is 
we need to follow the instructions or the reading of Moses. All right. That's our that's our that's our path. That's all I have. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I hear you, Brian, but I'll tell you in today's Torah portion, and Angelo, I am going to hand some of this over to you, but I want to read the opening portion of the Torah portion because there's things that I'm going to have to say about it. And you have to keep in mind that the Torah is not merely the words of Moshe. It's not merely the words of Moshe. All of scripture is the instruction of Yah, not just Moshe. And this is the big mistake that uh, the Maccabees, the Maccabean made uh, in bringing, uh, you know, the Edomites into the practice of Judaism. They honed on only the teaching of Moshe and ignored what's written in the prophets, ignored what's written in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in, in Ezekiel, ignored what David talked about, ignored what Solomon talked about. And most importantly, they ignored the clarity that was given to them concerning the Torah from Mashiach. You know, man was not created to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. And it's such an important distinction that, that Mashiach would be giving to clarify the, the Torah. Because we're going to see things. Well, look, David, before we get to you, do you mind if I do a little bit of Torah reading? I want to deal with just the first chapter in the Torah portion today. And I'll show you what I'm talking about to illustrate what it is that I mean. Is that okay? What I've got is real short. Okay, go ahead, go ahead David. You know, it says, uh, belief comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Yahuwah. Amen. And then the issue is, is that it doesn't come any other way. The false prophet is not the voice of Yahuwah. And uh, so if, you know, you if today you hear his voice, harden not his heart, harden not your heart. Well, how simple is that? It's not that simple. People try, the devil tries to imposter that. With all these false prophets. Now, the false prophet and the beast go to the lake of fire a thousand years before the devil and, and the goats. That's a big deal. Hmm. Anyway, that's all. That's what I wanted to share. Show yeah. them. Yeah, I appreciate that, David. And it's so true. Faith is, is by hearing, by hearing the word. Yeah, so true. Okay. All right. And then we'll come back to more of this. And then, habit two, did you, is there something you wanted to add here? Yes. Could you help me to understand when you mentioned for Samuel that the people voted for the king and but you left out the part that he said that he will never listen to their prayers ever again. Yeah, well uh, he he never listened to their prayers respecting government again. In other words, if you repent of the fact oh, that you Okay. If you repent of the fact that you picked a king, which many people have, too bad. You're stuck with it. You ask for the king, that's what you're getting. You're getting a king. And okay. This is very difficult in, in our modern world because we don't want to call him a king, but it is a king. It's just a king on a shortened leash. Yeah. yeah and uh, I've never voted myself ever my whole life. But um, the other thing I wanted to uh, uh, think about here was when you mentioned that they came to, uh, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, basically the lawyers, the barristers, you know, came to uh, talk about this certificate of divorce. Right. And so 
I'm wondering, you know, since you have a legal background, uh, would that presuppose that there was a certificate of marriage? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And there doesn't appear to be a certificate of marriage. And in fact, we're going to see this when we look in, the t in today's Torah portion. If you look at the model for marriage, and I think the best model is really what happens with Isaac and Rebecca. Because you have Isaac, you know, Abraham tells Isaac, do not marry a Canaanite woman. But instead, go to my family and find a wife, find somebody in our in our bloodline. And so oh. Abraham's agent goes on behalf of Yitzhak. Eliezer? Yeah, he, go, he goes on behalf of Yitzhak and he says, I'm here representing Abraham's son. But what does he do? He prays that Yah will reveal the woman that he is to marry. Mm -hmm. He is selected out of his own uh, reckoning, but rather that Yah will reveal the woman that he is to marry. And and he's, he sets out a fleece, if you will. Well, the woman who comes here and offers to give drink to both me and to my animals, well, this is the woman for me. And so Rebecca comes out and she offers him drink and his animals drink. And he realizes this is whom Yah has appointed for me to select for Yitchak. So first of all, you have this idea of committing the relationship to Yah. Let Yah find your partner. Number one. Number two, the man is represented by an agent who is going to the, to the parents of the woman and saying, I'm representing this man who wants to marry your daughter. Then he is presented to the parents. Yitzhak is going to inherit all the wealth of Abraham. He's an upright person. He's a good person. He's capable of taking the mantle of the cover of your daughter and providing a cover for her himself. So this representation is made to the parents. And the parents are like, hmm, okay, well, we, we believe in this representation that he's going to be able to do this. Then they ask the daughter, do you agree to do this? And Rebecca says, yes. Now, a lot of people teach in the community, particularly in the Torah observant community, they teach the ketubah and they teach all about the Jewish uh, wedding ceremony, but there is no Jewish wedding ceremony in scripture. Instead, you have this idea that the, the best presentment is what happens between Yitzhak and Rebecca. By the time you get to Yaakov, it's already messed up. And then virtually all these other things happen. In fact, let's take a look. Let's take a look. I want to take a look at the Torah portion. A lot of these questions will be answered. And I'll show okay. you. Okay. So let's do that. And we're going to be looking at Kitetsi in the Torah portion. And so I want to go through just kind of the first couple of paragraphs. I'm going to let Angela speak. So we're talking about Devarim here, 21 through 2519. These are very difficult words, in my opinion. When you go forth to war against your enemies, and Yahweh Elohim has delivered them into your hands, and you have taken them captive... And you see among the captives a beautiful woman and have desire under her that you would have her to be your woman. Then here's the extent of the marriage that, this, that is described in this passage. Yes. Then you shall bring her home to your house and you shall shave her head and pare her nails. 
and she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off of her, that is the clothing that she was wearing that belonged to the other tribe, she shall take that off and shall remain in your house and bewail her father and mother for a full month. So for 30 days, she is allowed to mourn and grieve about the fact that she's been taken away from her family and from her tribe. And after that, you shall go in under her and be her man and she shall be your woman, period. End of certificate, end of ritual, no ketubah, no nothing. This is, and then and boom, just like that, after 30 days, you shall go into her and boom, you're her man and she's your woman, just like that. But in it shall be if you have no delight in her, then you shall let her go wherever she will. Well, sorry, baby, I don't like you. Hit the road. But you shall not sell her at all for money and you shall not make merchandise of her because you have humbled her. Well, that's really quite something, isn't it? I decided that I think it's beautiful. So I'm going to bring you into my house as a captive, shave your head, make you take off all the garments of your tribe. And after a month, we're going to have sex. And then if I don't like it, we'll hit the road. That's what the Torah says, right? But you can't sell her. You, can, you just have to kick her out. No selling. How about this one? Here we go. And if a man has two women, well, okay. So here we have Moshe giving us not a certificate of marriage, but rather opening the door to polygamy. If a man has two women and one is beloved and the other is hated, hold on, and the other is hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be that when he makes his sons to inherit that which he has, that he may not make of the son the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn, giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, and the right of the firstborn is his. Now, maybe this is polygamy, or maybe this is serial monogamy. Okay, It's possible that that's the case. But either way, you're still talking about this idea of the firstborn. Now, we're going to deal with these concepts here, a couple more paragraphs, and then we'll, then I'm going to go back and deal with these individually. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gates of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, this is our, is, our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all of the men of the city shall stone him with stones that he dies. So you shall put evil away from among you and all Yasharel shall hear and fear. Well, okay, interesting. Now, this is not a passage that you often see in the Torah where it says, this person shall be put to death. Because in the Hebrew, that passage reads, mut vomut, which really doesn't mean you shall put him to death. That's kind of a generous uh, move of the English interpreters who like to use the death penalty frequently. But rather, you shall die the death, which may or may not mean being put to death, being stoned or hanged or burned, but rather excluded from the community, cast from the community. It could mean that. 
such that you would hold a funeral for a person. They no longer exist anymore. They've died in your heart. But here, this is not subject to ambiguity in any respect. You shall stone him with stones. Take this, take this person out, this son out, right out to the gate, and everybody stone him to death. Okay? And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death and hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him for that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of Elohim, that your land be not defiled, which Yahweh Eloheka gives you for an inheritance. Now, this goes immediately, of course, to Mashiach, who hung on a tree. And Yahweh gave the land as an inheritance, and Joseph of Arimathea was insistent that he be taken down from the tree before nightfall. All right, now going back up here to this passage, a couple of things to keep in mind about the Torah of Moshe is that we are called to understand the precept which underlies the teaching, okay? So there is a precept here that underlies the teaching. And so some of the precept that goes into this Torah portion, for instance, and let's take a look at this, because again, this is, a, you know, in my opinion, it's difficult. So you have a couple of things about them. One is, is that first, this woman here has been taken captive. Now, you know, in modern warfare, to the victor goes the spoils. And a lot of these mercenaries and, and armies, particularly the armies of Islam, were recruited because they were guaranteed that when they conquered the city, the these men could rape all the women and then steal all the stuff that they wanted. You know, and it was literally uh, the guys who got to the stuff first or the guys who were strong enough to take it away from their weaker brothers, but they would spoil the place and rob it blind. They'd steal everything, anything that was of a value, they'd put it in their own backpack, and then they'd rape the women and they'd leave. And this is common in modern warfare. This goes on right now. But here in the Torah premise, we're saying, okay, look, you go in there into warfare and you see a beautiful woman and you want her to be your woman. So when you read the passages in the book of Ezra, is it allowable for a son of Yasharel to take a wife of another tribe? Is that allowable? You know, according to Ezra, no, you're not supposed to be taking the woman of another tribe. That that was reprehensible to Yah. And yet here you have Moshe opening the door. Oh, yeah. So if you, if you conquer the Philistines or you conquer the Ammonites or you conquer the Moabites, or you conquer the Edomites, or whoever it is that you conquer, and you decide that you want one of one of their one of their women, well, you can take her for your wife. But there's things that you have to do. You have to shave her head and cut her fingernails, right? So you're basically removing all the trappings of her glory in her tribe. Because what is a woman's hair but a woman's glory? You're going to shave her head so, so you remove her glory and you're going to cut her nails and then you're going to take off the raiment that she had. So if she had a bunch of fancy clothes and she had some nice jewelry 
and she had a beautiful hairdo that was, you know, part of the Edomite wardrobe. Now she doesn't. Now you've shaved her head. That's gone. Her, her fingernails are cut off. And all that great clothing is out the door. Now, here's some Hebrew clothing for you, right? And then give her a month to deal with that issue. Okay, well, you have some ideas here that are, uh, that you're going to have this idea that one, foreign woman, approved. Foreign woman approved. Now, I knew a guy who fought in World War II. He just recently passed away at 101 years old. And he met a woman in Germany who's, she was married to a Nazi and her Nazi husband had died in the war. And he met her in Germany and he brought her home and married her. And they lived out the rest of their life together. Foreign woman, okay, check, okay. But there's a cleansing period. And in that cleansing period, her foreignness is removed. Her foreignness is removed, okay, for a month. She's given a month to remove her foreignness. Cleansing for a month. Then she's still subject to approval. And if not approved, out. Mm. Interesting that that is part of the Torah. But these are precepts that exist in the Torah, notwithstanding the particular aspects of this. And you can see also that there is no marriage ceremony. There is not, her parents aren't solicited. There is no approval that is being sought from her or from her parents or from her brother. All of that stuff is out. That's gone. There is no giving seven oaths to one another. There's no stepping on a champagne glass. There's no music. There's no songs. There's no wedding dress. There's none of that. None of that exists at all. There's just this ritual of a 30-day wait. Then, boom, she's your wife, unless you don't like her, right? After you have sex with her. So that's interesting. Okay. Then, of course, here in the, in the next paragraph, what we see is, even though the provision is, okay, well, if you have two women and they both have children by you, what is being established here, and this is a very important concept in law that does exist in the Torah, which is primogenitor. Now, Let's talk about a typical example of a guy who had two women, one whom fathered the firstborn and was hated, and the second one who fathered the beloved and was loved. That would be Avram. And the first one was Hagar, and she was hated. And the second one was Sarah, and she was beloved. And the son of Hagar was Ishmael. And according to the Torah, he shall acknowledge the son of the hated as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. That's not what happened. 
Abraham did not give Ishmael a double portion, but sent Ishmael and Hagar out into the wilderness to die. And Hagar was convinced they were going to die. And she said, send my son over there so I don't have to watch him die. And Yah came to her and said, he's not going to die. Go over that hill and look, there's a well. And he will be blessed and his children will be blessed. And he had 12 sons and they were all blessed. They were blessed by Yah, not by Avraham, who gave everything he had to Yitzhak. So you see that Avraham is in violation of this premise. But this premise here exists in the law of inheritance now as a Torah standard, a double portion for the firstborn. So when you're talking about being Torah compliant, if you have an estate, let's call here's the estate, okay? You've got 100% in the estate. And in this 100%, you have four kids, okay? There's four kids. So technically, this has to be divided by five because the first child gets two and the second child gets one, third child gets one, and the fourth child gets one. So in the long and the short of it is, is that this child is going to get 40%, according to the Torah, this child 20, this child 20, and this child 20. Okay, that's the precept which governs this particular paragraph. That's the precept of the Torah, okay? Uh, Akeem, did you have something you wanted to say here? Akeem? Shalom. You, you can hear me? Shalom. Yes, I can hear you. Yes. <clears throat> oh, no, I was saying, like, living in the city of New York and surrounded by, like, women today that really have the foreign look, it's like if you don't show some skin, you're not in. So as a single man, like, going to work on the train, like, it's, like, hard not to look and see this, to have that desire, but from this tall portions, like another sister told me, like imagine them being bald with their nails paired in different clothes. Like, so like, <laughs> you know, it's like every day, that's all you see over here. <laughs> yeah, is she still beautiful then, right? Is she still beautiful then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. That is, that's a very good point. And maybe that's part of what that Torah portion is about. Okay. You think she's beautiful. You think she's the cat's meow when you were, when you know, you'd been out of war for a year and you come into this city and all of a sudden you see this woman. Oh, this woman is absolutely gorgeous. And then you bring her home and shave her head and cut her nails. Uh, well, maybe I need to rethink this position here, right? Yeah, good point. Very good point. Okay. Now, the last, let's, let's take a look at this. A man has a stubborn son. Okay, now I mean I just have to tell you, I have a problem with this passage. I mean, I'm sorry I could not stun stone my son, even if he's rebellious and blah, 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 you know, because I think at some point he's gonna outgrow it. But in this case here, they're saying, no, this is not a son who's going to outgrow this, but rather he's a glutton 
and a drunkard, and he will not obey our voice in anything. Now, when you look at this and you see stuff like, for instance, uh, Avi Shalom, Absalom, the son of David, the one who kills uh, his half-brother for raping his half-sister, right? And he killed, and by the way, his half-brother was older than he was and had a right to the throne before Absalom did. But Absalom says, well, he raped Tamar. I'm going to kill him. And he does. Now, Absalom was not listening to the advice of David or anyone else for that matter. And ultimately, Absalom not only became a rebellious son, but actually went to war with David with the intent of killing David. And so Yoav... You know, Absalom, you know the story. Absalom gets his hair caught in the tree because he had some serious dreadlocks. And, you know, he's, he's riding on his mule with his dreadlocks and his dreadlocks get caught in the tree branch. And the next thing you know, he's hanging from the tree branch and his mule's got up. And Yoab sees him. It's like, hey, look at that, Absalom. What are you going to do now? Well, can you cut me loose and let me down? And Yoab is like, aren't you trying to kill the king, my boss? Uh, yeah, but look, I'm hung up in this tree. Can you let me down? Uh, no, I'm not going to let you down. And Yoab throws two spears at him, not one. But he spears him once, which is enough to kill him. That wasn't good enough for Yoab. He threw another one at him to make sure that Absalom was dead. Okay. Now, as Chris pointed out, this is for the, per for the benefit of all Yasharel. And so the precept here is that the rebellious child, the rebellious child, is deserving of death. And it has no part in Yasharel. This is the teaching of this portion. Now, I'll tell you, there are many things I don't like about Judaism and so on. But I can tell you there is one thing that I have seen in Judaism that I have great respect for. And that is the fact that the young men do respect their parents. They respect their fathers. And they speak well of their fathers and their fathers speak well of them. And that is, and now they may, among their friends, that may be something different or, you know, quietly in the back rooms or I don't know, but in public, they speak well of their fathers and their fathers speak well of their sons. And I think this premise is a very big part of that, that this is a standard to teach uh, your son that the son is not to be rebellious. And in particular, that the son who is completely disobedient is a glutton and, a, and it's a drunkard is to be cast out of Yasharel. And that Yasharel cannot move ahead, that the tribe cannot move ahead with this, okay? 
All right, and then last but not least, before I turn this over to Angela for the next reading. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, now, Mashiach, we're going to see here when we look at the Bessera portion today, that Pilate says to them, I have examined this man, and I do not see that he has committed any sin worthy of death. But the more he said that, the more the scribes and the Pharisees screamed for his death. You have to put him to death. You have to put him to death. Why? He disclosed the name of Yahweh. He disclosed the name of Yahweh. You have to put him to death. See? And if you do and you hang him on a tree, well, then he can't remain all night on the tree, but you shall in any ways bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of Elohim. So when we think about this being hung on a tree, now, are they talking about hanging using a rope? Or are they talking about just hanging from a tree? Well, I think that when you're talking about hanging him, you're talking about using a rope. Now, I can tell you that when you talk about the death penalty, this is my opinion. But when you talk about the death penalty, I think by far hanging is by far the most humane way to execute the death penalty, particularly if you do it in the fashion they used to do it in the Old West, that it would be using a, a very large hemp rope and you take the hemp rope and they would tie what's called the hangman's noose. And the hangman's noose would have 13 laps of the rope around the noose. And it, so it would create this kind of large knot, if you will, that was usually taller than the man's head. So it would go from the chin to a taller than his head in this knot. And they would take the rope and they would fasten it around the man's neck and they would put that knot on the side of his head not behind his head, but on the side of his head. And then uh, quite often, they would tie weight to his feet before the trap door would fall out, like a 100-pound bag of flour or something like this. Now, for some of you, you might recall that there was a point when the, when the tyrant, Abraham Lincoln, he executed, I think, trying to remember how many it was. It was 28, maybe. Uh, yeah, Native American leaders was it twenty? Yeah. Listen to Bible study. That's all. What's happening? Okay, I was gonna make oatmeal. Do you want some? Sure. Can you get? Okay, hold on. Just tell me right now. Oh, hold on, hold on. Strike them out. There we go. Okay. So when we talk about this, it was um, I think it was twenty-eight Native American leaders. He hung at one time, so he had a square gallows built. And so there were, you know, guys facing on the four corners of the gallows. This way, this way, this way, this way. And he dropped them all at the same time. Really quite uh, dramatic and very, very uh, tyrannical. But the, the point is that with the hanging, when it's done correctly, with noose being alongside the head, that when the floor falls out, and the body drops, it immediately snaps the neck, and there is no delay in the person dying. The person dies immediately on the spot. 
and there's not dangling and suffocating for two minutes or three minutes. It's an immediate death. And so, you know, you compare that to frying somebody with electric voltage in an electric chair, which as far as I'm concerned is cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, the idea that they use with this uh, lethal injection, which they don't use the same lethal injection they'd give a dog, they kill you elsewise, and it's extremely painful and very deadly. And, you know, people want people to suffer when they, when they give them the death penalty. Okay. So with that, let's continue. And Angelo, do you want to continue to read here? Uh, yes. Beginning in chapter 22. Yeah, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. Go ahead. All right, thank you. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray and hide yourself from them. You shall not in any case bring them again unto your brother. And if your brother be not nigh unto you, or if you know him not, and you shall bring it unto your own house. And it shall be with you until your brother seek after it, and you shall restore it to him again. In like manner shall you do with his ass, and so shall you do with his raiment, and with all lost things of your brothers, which he has lost and you have found. Shall you do likewise, you may not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. The woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto Yahweh Eloheka. Okay, now let's stop there for a second, Angela. Let's talk a couple things. First of all, here and up. This is a duty, okay? Now, we just studied this in the, in the 10 Devarim class last week concerning thou shalt not steal. So not only do you have a duty to find that which has gone astray, you know, if you find somebody's cattle that's wandering around or you find something that belongs to your neighbor somewhere else, and then you're supposed to take it home and hold it for him, Right. But it's the same thing with something that is stolen, even in fact, even more so for something that is stolen, that you shall not be partakers in someone else's sin. Now, this is a very express teaching that Peter gives us in the New Testament. You shall not be the partaker in someone else's sin. And so to the extent that you find something that is stolen, can you still sell stolen goods? No. The, I believe the Torah reaches out here at something like, for instance, if you find something that belongs to your neighbor, can you turn around and sell it? You know, hey, hey look, I remember that boat you lost two years ago? I found it in the parking lot at Sears and I went ahead and sold it. Can't do that. And equally true, you cannot do uh, that, the same thing with a stolen item either. You cannot be a partaker in someone else's sins. So we find this burden here that's very, very clear that you have to uh, hold this for them and you have a duty to do that. Now, the woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto Yahweh. Well, here's the Torah portion on, you know, on transgenderism right here. Right? Am I wrong about this? This is the Torah portion on transgenderism, right here, very clearly. 
And so the big question is, and this is a big question inside the, the Torah observant community, can a woman wear pants? Let's get some opinions on this. Let's just stop for a moment and let's get some opinions. Shall a woman wear pants? Or are those, is that men's clothing or is that women's clothing? It might be a modern take, but like a, a pants can be made for women, for instance, in which case I would classify them as a woman's garment. But, uh, you know, I think that maybe modern bias of pants or icy pants is maybe unisex where like historically they may not, may not be. In Ireland, they wear a skirt. Right. Good point. Kilts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Corey? Dr. P. Yeah, go ahead. Different for men and women or like even buttons, like in clothing. Uh, what about buttons? They're different for men than they are for women, the way you button them, because I guess the kings used to. Left to right, right. Left yeah, right. like whatever. Yeah, that's and, correct. One and side then is, the yeah. I think it's different for a male's pants and a woman's pants. Okay, okay, all right, okay. I don't know, I think so. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. So now, you know, there's a great video out there uh, that you can get on Netflix. It's called, What is a Woman? <laughs> and this is absolutely a great video. And this guy's just asking the question, well, what is a woman? And so in, in, the, in the trans community, they say, well, uh, this guy identifies as a woman. And so the guy says, well, what is a woman? I mean, how do you say you identify as a woman? What is a woman? that you can identify as a woman. And none of these people can answer the question, right? None of them can answer the question. And in fact, there's points during the movie where a couple of the professors want to beat him up. <laughs> they, they literally want to pound him in the face with their fists, have him arrested, kicked out of their offices and so on and so forth because they can't answer the simple question, what is a woman? Because to think that a woman is uh makeup and high heels ignores the obvious, ignores the, the plain statement of the creation of a woman and, and the creation of a man. But I think most, you know, many people in, particularly in the West, are lost. They don't know what, what it is to be a man and they don't know what it is to be a woman. They have no idea. And here Moshe is saying, a woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man. Well, I mean, you know, this this becomes a big question when you're talking about, for instance, a shirt or a pair of pants that Deborah Reeve is pointing out. Well, there's a woman's shirt and there's a, a, a you know woman's pair of pants. Does that mean if a man puts on a shirt that buttons the wrong way, that uh, that he's offended this Torah provision? And if everybody back in those days was wearing, for instance. Uh, long flowing garments that were, you know, either linen or wool. And uh, so, you know, you had this long flowing garment and you had a rope around your, around your waist to hold the long flowing garment. And maybe you had a cloak that went over the top of it. How was the, the woman's garment different from the man's garment? You 
you know, I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm kind of answer, I'm kind of asking this question, you know. So what are they talking about in particular, right? And so, anyway, I don't have the answer for it, but we do know this: that the Torah provision is right here, and if the trans community wants to know about it, it's right here. Okay, it's right there. Okay, okay, let's keep going, Angela. Sorry about interrupting there. No, no, thank you. Uh, if a bird's nest chance to be before, excuse me, if a bird's nest chance to be before you in the way, in any tree, or on the ground, whether they be young ones or eggs, and the dam sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, you shall not take the dam with the young, but you shall in any wise let the dam go and take the young to you, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Okay, so right here, we finally have the answer to Rev Tevia's question. There must be something in the good book about the chicken. So <laughs> here it is. <laughs> Oi. Okay. All right. When you build a new house, then you shall make a battlement for your roof, that you bring not blood upon your house if any man falls from thence. Now, I can tell you this Torah provision here, when you're in Eastern Europe, where uh, a lot of the Ashkenazis used to live, right? Whether in Poland or Belarusia or Ukraine or along the Black Sea or in uh, Romania or in any of that area, you'll see houses and you can tell the Jewish built house because it has this edge. And I, I don't know if they, I think they used to make them out of brass, but it might've been out of tin even. But you have this edge along the edge of the house that is like some kind of a fence. And usually they're about maybe a foot high and they rise up above the gutters. So on, on the edge of the house, there's this foot high fence on either on either side of the house. So you could you could look at a house and immediately tell if it was Jewish or Jewish owned because it had this so-called battlement on the roof. So in case you lost your footing, suppose you're on the roof and you're up there playing the fiddle and you slip, right? That you're going to slip and you're going to hit the battlement instead of falling off and breaking your neck, okay? So this was the rule. And you can and you can tell Jewish houses because they do this. They did this, particularly in Eastern Europe. Okay, keep going, sorry. You shall not sow your vineyard with diverse seeds. Lest the fruit of your seed, which you have sown, and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. Okay, now look, this for the vintner out there, this is a critical rule. Don't put the Merlot grape in with the Cabernet Sauvignon. Absolutely. You're ended up with a, you're going to end up with a blended red that nobody's going to like, nobody's going to appreciate it. You have to keep the Montepulciano separate from the Sangiovese, and you have to keep that separate from the from the Saparavi and separate from the Cabernet grapes. This is all absolutely critical otherwise you ended up with with a blended red but you know the funny thing is is i've been in like the vineyards in georgia and they do what's called a scion right where you take you have a, a the vine of a particular grape and then you you do a a scion to put the branch of a different kind of grape into that vine right now, you know what i mean by that where you cut like the tea in the side of the of the vine, cut a T in the side of the vine. You got a long strip this way, and then you take grafting, grafting, and you graft in the branch 
and then you graft into the branch onto the tree and then you wrap it so that it holds the branch and the branch then takes part of takes part of the tree well i saw a vine i saw a vine in a, in a place called the talabi and that thing was growing multiple colored grapes you know some red some white some green and uh because it had, had many many graftings into this huge vine but here you see that moshe says no this is not allowed now also when you talk about Again, this is has to do with the vineyard, right? It has to do with the vineyard, not necessarily the garden, but the vineyard. Okay. So in the this is an instruction. And if you go and you look at guys who know stuff about vineyards, they plant their vineyard discreetly. So let's say you're going to grow different kinds of grapes. You're going to grow maybe you got maybe you're going to grow eight different kinds of grapes. You'll have a, an, a discrete vineyard of Cabernet. You'll have a discrete vineyard of Saparabi. You'll have a discrete vineyard of Sangiovese. You know, these, the vines will be separated and they will not be grown together. Okay. All right, keep going. Um, you shall not plow with an ox and an ass together. Now, why not do that, Angelo? Well, uh, just from the behavior of uh, one against the other, I mean, uh, would they ever work together? Well, you know, right? the ox is going to go at one rate and the ass right. is going to go at another, right? And the next thing you know, you're going to have, a, you're going to have, a, instead of having straight line furrows, you're going to have a circle. Right. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. You shall not wear a garment of diverse sorts as a wooden, excuse me, woolen and linen together. All right, now with this one, I never quite understood what was the purpose of this until I realized that wool causes sparks. You know, you put a sweater on, you get static in your hair and you get zapped and you, you know, electrocute each other when you touch each other. Linen does not do that. And you have this express teaching that the priests can only go into the temple wearing linen period absolutely no wool why not because if they entered into the holy of holies where there was massive electricity going on they could cause a spark and it would zap them and kill them so that's part of the reason why the, there is this prohibition when it when it says make this a linen garment and not a wool and linen garment you're not supposed to do that no but similarly you also have another problem too that the linen is not going to shrink but the wool will and so you're going to end up, once again, you're going to end up with some kind of a weird garment if you do this, okay? All right, keep going. Yeah, that's fascinating. And of course, they wouldn't know that, but it's fascinating how everything, is, so there's a reason behind it all, absolutely. Uh, 12, you shall make fringes upon the four quarters of your vesture, wherever, where, excuse me, wherewith you cover yourself. Ah, okay, here we are, guys. Seat, seat. Let's talk seat, seat. What do we know? I, I can, I believe I can comment on that. Wait, um, wasn't the purpose of that because of the one who would not obey the manna command was out on Sunday gathering? And it was an order now to wear this to, as a reminder for one. And then another prophetic thing is that there's a scripture, is it in Malachi, um, where it talks about he had healing 
in the quarters of his garment. That lady knew that with full faith, and so she reached out to grab Mashiach's uh, quarters. Is that correct, Dr. Prison? Yeah, that's not in Malachi. That's in the Gospels, that the woman with the issue of blood. No, I meant the prophecy where it talks about, there, there's a bad translation that talks about, well, the word shamash can mean servant, or it can mean S-U-N, son. So it said that the, the servant of righteousness would have healing in his quarters as opposed to wings, like in the outstretched part of his garment. And so she reached out to grab him, knowing that. Well, that was just a study I had done years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. On that passage, yeah, the son of righteousness, S-U-N. Yeah, so, so like in other words, shamash can, be, can mean also servant of righteousness. So this servant of righteousness would have healing in the quarters, of, in his seat, if you will, in the quarters, in the wings. Yeah. The outer stretches of the garment. So it was just a thought, anyway. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for raising that, Angela. Appreciate that. Okay. All right. So we're at uh, 12. Is that correct? Uh, okay, Thir 13. Yeah. If any man take a woman and go in unto her and hate her and give occasions of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city in the gate. And the damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter unto this man to be his woman, and he hates her. And lo, he has given occasions of speech against her, saying, I found not your daughter a maid, and yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. And the elders of that city shall take that man and chastise him, and they shall immerse him in a hundred shekels of silver and give them unto the father of the damsel, because he has brought up an evil name upon the virgin of Yasharoth, and she shall be his woman. He may not put her away all his days. But if this thing be true, and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she dies, because she has brought folly and Yashorel to play the whore in her father's house. So shall you put evil away from among you. Well, difficult proposition, right? And so one of the questions is, so who maintains this cloth that is going to be the token of her virginity. The parents are the ones who are going to bring out the cloth. So does this mean that the parents show up on the wedding night and lay a cloth down on the bed, say, we'll be back in the morning to pick this up? These are big questions, right? And there's also another question, true, too, which is that uh, that assumes that there are no other means by which a woman might lose that uh, provision uh, protecting her virginity by other means, which sometimes happens with women, right? And if she can't do that, if she can't prove, and you know, let's be succinct about this. So I, I realize this is a PG discussion, and it is, and we have to recognize that. But you're talking about some bloodletting. Am I correct? 
I guess we got kind of, we kind of have a silence on this. Issue. Yeah. We're talking about some bloodletting on the wedding night. That's what is being spoken of here. That, that's my understanding. Yeah. Would and, that be the same thing under what it was described in the, um, where it said that on the night, if the man found some uncleanness in her, would that be referring to that? That's exactly right. And that's the so-called uncleanness. Now, when you look at this, we've, we see a provision earlier in the Torah that if a man has more than one woman, right? So there's no requirement that the man come into the marriage as a virgin. There's a requirement that the woman come into the marriage as a virgin. And that if she can't prove her virginity by bringing out a token of her virginity, which would be a cloth that shows some blood, then, and he doesn't like her, then guess what? She can be stoned. Right? She can be stoned. And when you see this idea, when you look, there's nothing that Mashiach is going to discuss in the Gospels that is not going to be that is not going to have a precedent in the Torah. In other words, Mashiach is not going to talk against the Torah. He will clarify the Torah, but he's not going to talk against the Torah. And so when he says that you, you, there, there is no divorce except for pornea, the Greek word pornea, what is that pornea he's talking about? He's talking about that the woman comes into the marriage, not a virgin. That's what he's talking about, primarily. Fundamentally, that's what he's talking about. Dr. P, can I just ask you a question? What if the, as a child, the girl or teenager, the girl is raped? Yeah, I mean, these are questions, right? What if the girl is raped? What if there's other things that happen that cause her to lose her ability to bleed on her wedding night? And there's other things that, that can cause that. You know that, right? I mean, how right. many of you know this, right? Right. Am I right about this? Or am I You're wrong? Right. Okay. So under those circumstances, so you have two things. One is if she cannot, you know, if she cannot uh, maintain this such that there is evidence of blood on this token on her wedding night, premise number one. So she's in jeopardy there. But she's not in jeopardy if the man doesn't hate her. But what if the man does hate her? What if the man doesn't like her? What if the man is one of these guys, well, I got what I was looking for. Now hit the road, baby. But if that's the situation, right? And and she can't produce this cloth with blood on it, then she is stoned to death. Now, this is some of the thing that I think that we're going to see when we look at the Torah, and it's important for us to understand this about the Torah. That, you know, like I'll give you an example. The Torah teaches that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, the matter is established. But what if these witnesses are lying? Like in the case of the of uh, Navot, the um, vineyard owner, when Ahav wanted his vineyard. And Jezebel says, just have two guys stand up and say, hey, he, we heard him blaspheme Yah, take him out and stone him, and then you can take his vineyard. And they do. So they give a lying testimony, and a man is put to death. So the clarity we get later on in this same book, and this is why you have to take all of Scripture and not just merely Moshe's Torah as the instruction. Because what is shown to us in Daniel, in particular in the additions to Daniel, namely Bell and the Dragon, and in the book of Susanna, the two witnesses testify against Susanna. They wanted 
they, you know, they were watching her take a bath in her backyard. They wanted to have something to do with her. And she said, I'm not doing anything with you guys. Get out. And so they go and report to the city that they watched her fornicating with some guy in her backyard with the intent that she should be stoned to death. Two witnesses, the matter was established. She was going to die. And Daniel came up and said, just hold on here a minute before you go doing that. Let's do some cross-examination and find out if these two witnesses are telling the truth. And so he does this examination and he says, oh, yeah, she was having sex with some guy. Is that right? Yeah. Under what tree? And one guy says, oh, it was the olive tree. The other guy says it was the terebinth tree. And Daniel says, both of you are going to die today because of your false witness. Right. And so we see a further clarification the farther we get into scripture that these things are going to be mitigated. Right. And so we see the woman who is found in adultery in John chapter eight. Oh, we caught her in the very act of adultery. Oh, you caught her in the very act of adultery? How's that? You caught her in the very act? Then where's the guy? Where's the You caught her in the very act. Where's the guy? Well, we only want to stone her. And they have reason under the Torah to stone her, right? You shall have no whore in Israel, right? That she has wrought folly in Yasharel to play the whore in her father's house. So shall you put evil away from among you right? That the men of the city shall stone her with stones that she dies. So there's a Torah provision to say, well, she was acting the whore, we can stone her. But the Torah is also going to say that when the man and the woman are doing it, both of them shall be stoned. And they caught both of them, right? And we're also going to see there's other provisions in, in that are going to be mitigated in the New Testament, that we realize that Moshe puts this stuff forward but Yahusha says, look, before Moshe put this stuff forward, there was a Torah that superseded Moshe, that Moshe contradicted. Moshe contradicted the Torah of Yah. And so one should not be, do not be an immature believer who goes from being in a Christian church where you never read the Bible and everything that came out of your mouth about your faith was my pastor says, my pastor says, my pastor says into reading the Torah from the first time, and then you become a Torah Nazi, wielding the 613 mitzvot of Moshe like a machete, and cutting your friend's hands off, without having read the rest of the text, to understand that you have to know all of Scripture to know what's going on in terms of the precepts. Understand the precept of Moshe, but recognize that in many of these cases, it had to be further clarified by other prophets and other teachers who said, when you actually do these things in practice, you need to recognize what they are and how they are mitigated. And the doctrine that came in that was so huge was the doctrine of forgiveness. Okay? The doctrine of forgiveness that came out of the mouth of Moshiach, who said, you shall forgive that you might be forgiven. You shall forgive that you might be forgiven. And so none of the Moshe's Torah should be understood without recognizing the doctrine of forgiveness. Okay? All right.
Okay. And like, let's read the next Torah provision, Angela, right there. Yeah, begin. right there in 22, right? If a man be found lying with a woman married to a man, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shall you put away evil from Yasharel. Yeah, not just the woman, right? Okay, keep going. 23. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a man, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city. Ye shall stone them with stones if they die, the damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he has humbled his neighbor's woman, so he shall put away evil from among you. Now, I can tell you that this used to be the law before the rape shield law was created in the rules of evidence. This used to be the law. And so oftentimes a woman would say, well, I've been raped. And the police would say, well, did you cry out? That would be one of the interrogation techniques that was used before the police would, would make an arrest for rape. Oh, you claim you were raped. Did you cry out? Are there any witnesses that heard you cry out? You were in your house. Did you scream that your neighbors could hear? Did you scream that your, anybody in your house could hear? Did you scream that when you were in your apartment that the people living upstairs from you heard you scream? Did you cry out? That was the question they used to ask, right? And here you see the Torah presumption is that, look, if you get raped in the city and nobody else heard it, did you make a sound, right? If a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, did it make a sound? You know, if you cried out and no one heard you cry out, well, then you still get stoned. And believe me, this kind of law, by the way, is still prevalent in Islamic culture. A woman gets raped and then she comes out and says, I got raped. And they say, OK, well, first of all, you cannot uh, 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 you cannot convict a man of rape in the Islamic world with less than four witnesses. Did you cry out loud enough that four people heard you cry out? If you didn't, then it's not rape if you were in the city. Okay, but now let's read the next provision here in verse 25. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel you shall do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man rises against his neighbor and slays him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. Okay, now here you have a presumption that she cried out. Here there is a presumption that she cried out, whether or not she did. So a woman might argue, well, look, the presumption is here that I cried out, but I was in the city and nobody heard me. Well, if nobody heard you, well, then what's the difference between being in the city where nobody can hear me cry out and being in the field where nobody can hear me cry out? Don't I have the right to the presumption that I cried out and nobody heard me? Right? I mean, these kinds of things are, you know, what you might call a nuanced legal argument. But you can see it's a bit flat-footed. And there is a presumption here that she did, in fact, cry out. But it was unheard. Okay. Okay, 28. If a man finds a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give in unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his woman, because he has humbled her. He may not put her away all his days. 
Okay, so here you have this idea that, okay, here's a gal who's got no dowry and, and she's not pledged to anybody, right? So there's been no yente involved pledging her to be married to somebody. Okay, well, this guy found her and then he sleeps with her. Okay, well, now that you've slept with her, cough up 50 shekels and she's now your wife. You know, in other words, cough up some form of dowry and she becomes your wife, right? And then finally, a man shall not take his father's woman nor discover his father's skirt. Okay. Okay, let's break into 23 since we're getting into difficult subjects. Let's do it. He that is wounded in the stones or has his privy member cut off shall not enter into the assembly of Yahuwah. A bastard shall not enter into the assembly of Yahuwah. Even to his 10th generation shall he not enter into the assembly of Yahuwah. Okay, now I got to tell you, Angela, I taught this when I was up in Calgary teaching once. And a guy wrote me right back and he said, I'm going to burn the sepher. I said, why are you burning the sepher? He said, because you've taught this. You taught this thing here. And I said, well, you've got every Bible that you ever know you're going to have to burn because it says the same thing in every Bible. Now, we know this, that this passage right here, Isaiah comes out and says, uh-uh, the eunuch, in fact, does have a home in the kingdom. The eunuch does, in fact, have a home in the kingdom. Now, so this guy said, well, look, I've had a vasectomy, and I was born out of wedlock. So you're trying to tell me I'm out. I'm going to burn your scripture. That's what he told me. I said, well, first of all, the eunuch does have a place in the scriptural world. And secondly, what is a bastard? who shall not enter into the assembly of Yahweh. A bastard is defined in the book of Enoch. It's not what you think it is. A bastard is defined in the book of Enoch. And what is the bastard in the book of Enoch? But it is someone whose one parent was Nephilim. He's got mixed DNA. That's what a bastard is. Not something else. Because remember what we see here, right? We see here that, oh, you, you find a beautiful woman in the, in the middle of the wars, you bring her home, you shave her head, you cut her fingernails, and then you go into her, and she's your wife. End of story. Guy meets a virgin, he goes into her, pays the father 50 bucks, she's his wife. There's no ketubah, there's no ceremony, there's no giving an oath, there's nothing. It's like, boom, that's it. You guys are a couple, you're married. That's, it, it, that's how it is in scripture. She's now your woman. Boom, 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 boom. Just like that. Well, so, so how do you assign and say, oh, well, this child was born out of wedlock? What wedlock? What wedlock? The bastard is defined in Enoch. And the bastard is Nephilim seed. Okay, go ahead, Angelo. Keep going. Mamani or Moabi shall not enter into the assembly of Yahweh. Even to their 10th generation shall they not enter into the assembly of Yahweh forever. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way, and you came forth out of Mitzrayim. And because they hired against you Bilam, the son of Beor, of Petbar, of Aram, Naharayan, to curse you. Nevertheless, Yahweh, Eloheka, would not hearken unto Bilam, but Yahweh. Eloheka turned the curse into a blessing unto you, because Yahweh Eloheka loved you. You shall not seek their peace, 
nor their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an enemy, for he is your brother. Is that Edomi or enemy? What would be? Uh, yeah, Edomi. 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 Okay. The best way to pronounce it. Yeah, Edomi. Yeah, Edomi. For he is your brother. You shall not abhor a Mitzri, because you are a stranger in his land. The children that are begotten of them shall enter into the assembly of Yahweh in their third generation. When the host goes forth against your enemies, then guard you from every wicked thing. Excuse me, then guard, yes. Yeah, that means you are not supposed to go in there and rape and pillage and steal their stuff and rape their women and kill their animals. And, you know, and you're not supposed to do that. When the army goes forth against your enemies, then don't do wicked stuff. Follow these rules. If there be among you any man that is not clean by reason of uncleanness that chances him by night, then shall he go abroad out of the camp. He shall not come within the camp, but it shall be when evening comes on, he shall wash himself with water. And when the sun is down, he shall come into the camp again. What's going on there? That is not clean by reason that chances him by night. What would that be? Hello. Can you still hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought I went um, I thought I went dead there for a second. Sorry about that. Um, okay, verse 12. You shall have a place also without the camp, whither you shall go forth abroad. And you shall have a paddle upon your weapon, and it shall be when you ease yourself abroad, you shall dig therewith, and shall turn back and cover that which comes from you. For Yahweh Eloheka walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore shall your camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in you and turn away from you. You shall not deliver unto this Adonai, the servant which is escaped from his Adoni unto you, or Adoni, perhaps, I guess. He shall dwell with you, even among you, in that place which he shall choose in one of your gates, where it likes him best. You shall not oppress him. There shall be no whore of the daughters of Yasharel, nor of Sadami, of the sons of Yasharel. You shall not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of Yahweh Eloheka. Okay, now let's stop there for just a second, Angelo. Mm -hmm. Because you shall not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of Yahweh Eloheka for any vow. Okay, now what's he talking about when he's talking about the price of a dog? Male prostitute. Male prostitute, yep. And so when you're talking about you shall not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house, yet when you look at the woman who brought the spikenard to Mashiach, was she not a prostitute who had raised that money, the money that she spent on the spikenard, where'd she get that money? Was it not from being a prostitute? And she brings in this spikenard and she puts it on his feet and washes his feet with her hair. So what is Mashiach saying at this point? And Judas is like, 
She shouldn't be doing that. If she's going to give the spike in art, we should take it and go sell it and give the money away to the poor because we shouldn't be bringing in this, this price of the, the bringing the higher of the whore to use this spike in art for your burial, right? And Mashiach says, I tell you the truth, what she has done will be talked about forever. And we're talking about it right now, 2,000 years later. It should be talked about forever. And why is that? Because there is no Torah portion that should be understood outside the parameters of forgiveness. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. Excellent. You shall not lend upon usury to your brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger you may lend upon usury, but unto your brother you shall not lend upon usury, that Yahweh may bless you and all that you set your hand to in the land whither you go to possess it. When you shall vow a vow unto Yahweh Eloheka, you shall not slack to pay it, for Yahweh Eloheka will surely require it of you, and it would be sin in you. But if you shall forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in you. That which is going out of your lips, you shall guard and perform, even a free will offering, according as you have vowed unto Yahweh Eloheka, which you have promised from your mouth. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, that you may eat grapes, you are filled at your own pleasure, but you shall not put any in your vessel. When you come into the standing grain of your neighbor, then you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not move a sickle unto your neighbor's standing grain. Okay, now, when we talk about this, when you vow a vow to Yahweh Eloheka, do you guys remember the story of Yiftak? The story of Yiftak, he, uh, it was very interesting, the story of Yiftak. He was born a bastard child. His mother was a whore. And his father ended up with him and was raising him. And then his father married another woman and had many sons. And her sons told him, get out. You've got no inheritance here. Go away. Even though the Torah provides that one is hated and the other is loved, the firstborn shall have a double portion. But Yiftak is cast out because he's the son of a whore. And Ultimately, they need him to lead the armies. So they go and they get Yiftak and they say, Yiftak, come back in and lead our armies because the Ammonites are attacking us, trying to make a land, a land grab. And so Yiftak confronts them. But then Yiftak makes a prayer to Yah and says, if you give me this battle, when I go home, the first thing that comes out my door, I will sacrifice. And when he comes home, the first thing that came out the door was his beloved daughter. Right? Now, here's the Torah portion. When you vow a vow unto Yahweh Eloheka, you shall not slack to pay it, for Yahweh Eloheka will surely require it of you. So, I mean, one question, I mean, when you read that passage, you think, well, did Yah require human sacrifice? Did Yah ever require human sacrifice? No, that was Yiftak's crazy idea. 
Not Yah's idea. But you can see that story is one of, in, in my opinion, it's one of the most heartbreaking stories in all scripture that, that would happen. And, uh, but at any rate, we see this kind of a thing. Okay. And then when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat the grapes at your fill at your own pleasure. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been in a vineyard, but one of the things you discovered very quickly when you go into a vineyard is that if a vineyard is all you have for food, you're going to be hungry really quick because just, you know, eating a bunch of grapes off the vine is not going to do a thing for you. And you can pick a bunch here and you can pick a bunch there as long as you don't put them into a bucket, right? Don't put those grapes into a bucket because then you're gathering grapes for your own. But when you're sitting there, you know, you pull a bunch off of here and a bunch off there and you eat them, fine. You can do that. Same thing when you go into your neighbor. You're going to pick the grain and you want to eat the head, fine. And in fact, if you look in the Gospels, it tells us Mashiach was traveling with his Talmudim through a field of barley on the second Sabbath of the year, plucking and eating the heads. Right? That's what it tells us. And so you can do that. But as soon as you put a sickle in there, hey, you're starting to harvest, right? And there is there is a difference. So you can you can pluck what you what you can eat while you're in there. You can eat, you can you can pull. So how many people go into the supermarket and you know take a grape off, off the grape thing and eat it while you're standing there, right? I remember when I was kids, man, my friends used to think that was the cat's meow. Oh, let's just eat a grape here and we'll have a, you know, and eat a plum there, blah, blah, blah. And then when you get older, when you come in and you go to you go to buy a um, thing of cream cheese and you get up to the counter to pay for it and then you open it up and it's half eaten, eh, that's not so cool. Okay. All right. Let's keep going, Angelo. Let's do when a man has taken a woman and married her. When a man has taken a woman and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a separate of divorcement. There's the certificate of divorce right there. Right. And give it into her hand and send her out of his house. Now, the rabbis talk about this. Well, what is some uncleanness? And there's some rabbis that take it to, oh, she burnt the toast. <laughs> right? And... You know, and but I think the uncleanness that's being discussed about here goes back to the token of her virginity, right? That the uncleanness is that she was unclean because she was defiled by another man at some point. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's woman. And if the latter man hates her and writes her a separate of divorcement, and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, which took her to be his woman, her former man, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his woman. After that, she is defiled, for that is abomination before Yahweh. And you shall not cause the land to sin, which Yahweh Eloheka gives you for an inheritance. I have a question on this. This is one that's always been of interest to me. The second man would he not know that she was already and so then he lets her go there's a lot of interesting things going on there you know did he know that she was unclean because she was already with another man of course yeah of course right I mean, yeah so if so how is he writing her a separate divorcement well i think at this point it's like well whatever but what's critical about this is that read this passage very carefully so the first husband divorces her she gets remarried. Now, when she's remarried, 
if her husband divorces her, or if her husband dies, she still can't remarry her first husband. So this mythology that we're told in the Christian church was, oh, Mashiach had to die so that the husband died so Yah could remarry his bride. No, the Torah does not allow for that. The Torah does not allow Yahweh to remarry the bride he has divorced. Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3, Yahweh gives the northern tribes a certificate of divorce and then says, the southern kingdom has done, has played the harlot even more so. And so people say, well, Yah didn't divorce the southern kingdom. Yeah, then why was the temple destroyed never to be rebuilt? Why were they cast out of Jerusalem never to be allowed back in? That wasn't a divorce? And so you say, well, 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 we're the bride of Christ, are we? The bride of Mashiach is described in Revelation 21. Isn't that the city of Jerusalem coming down? Yeah, that's New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem coming down. This is the bride adorned for Mashiach. It's New Jerusalem. See, you know, again, this I, I find this stuff to be, for me, I'm, I'm just stating my opinion. Now, maybe you guys have a different opinion, but I'm stating my opinion. I don't believe that we are the bride of Mashiach. We are the members of his body. his body. We are the stones of the temple built without hands. We are the temple. We are kings and priests. We are members of his body, not his bride. The bride is New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. That's what it says in Revelation 21. And it's the only place that describes the bride of Mashiach. So, and the Torah portion does not provide that Mashiach had to die so Yah could remarry the kingdom that he had divorced. Because the Torah provision says right here, he can't, even if her man dies, he cannot remarry her. Because it is, an, it is she is defiled and it is an abomination to Yahweh. That's what it says. So, you know, we need to try to get some of that mythology out of our minds, some of this Christian mythology that we've been taught. Because it's not accurate. And particularly when you think about, oh, well, we want to be the bride of Mashiach. Well, why are you talking about being bride of Mashiach when you're a member of his body? You're a member of the body of Mashiach. What is the body of Mashiach? What is the temple? Where do we go to worship? Do we go to worship at a place where Yah has placed his name? Where has Yah placed his name? He's placed his name in you. He's placed his name in your heart. That's why you're a temple made without hands. That's why you're a priest. That's why you're a king, because he has selected you. He calls you friend. You are a member of his body, and each member of his body has a different function. There's a different things we do inside the body, but we're members of his body, okay? So I hope that, you know, again, I'm, I'm stating, you know, I'm stating my opinion here, but that's what, that's what I read in the scripture. Anybody have any feedback on that? I do. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Uh, well, first of all, um, we are the living stones that make up the temple or slash new, new Jerusalem. So technically, we are the bride. If you look at several scriptures, um, if I'm thinking of one. I can't place it right now. Where it says, you will no longer call me Baali, but you call me Ishi. I think it's in Hosea. It's in Hosea, We're going to call it, which means husband. So you, you gotta, we had to have by the mouth of two or three witnesses, we have to establish a matter. 
Um, yes, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, we are New Jerusalem. We make up New Jerusalem. We are the temple that um, Abraham was looking for. He was looking for a city that was built without hands. And I like it. There's a very good brother out there that makes a very good point. What is a city? A city is not a location. A city is not buildings. A city is a people. A kingdom cannot be a kingdom without people. We are the living stones that make up the city. We are the living stones that make up the kingdom. Therefore, we are New Jerusalem. Therefore, we are the bride. Okay, we, you know, it, it, and I appreciate that, Brian, and I thank you for saying that. Although, keep in mind that when you read about New Jerusalem in Revelation, it says there is no temple inside of inside of Jerusalem because Yah is the temple, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. We make up the kingdom. Yah has a kingdom. He is not going to dwell among unclean people. He's not going to do that. He's, he doesn't want a physical kingdom. He never wanted a physical kingdom. That's why the tabernacle, he had a provision that moved. The tabernacle represents us. We moved. As the tabernacle moved, we moved. That, that's a picture of us moving. He never wanted a temple that Solomon set up. He didn't want that. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, that the, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be housed in a tent not in a brick building, not in a stone building. And when they put it in a stone building, the, you know, Yah had to do extraordinary things uh, for that ark that he didn't have to do when it was in a tent. Yeah. Anybody else, any feedback on this issue? I had a question, uh, Dr. P, about the, the word husband, and I don't know if it would apply here. And what was it from Hosea? I mean, from, uh, from Hosea you know, 2. Yeah, yeah. I say and the question is, is that, you know, husband and wife really doesn't appear uh, in either the Greek or the Hebrew. But doesn't it, that mean like owner or gardener, like like your husband, like doesn't like King James did that as a translation that I, I don't know if I'm off base on this. But in other words, it says, you know, that you are the husband man. Isn't that the word that they use? Something like husband that. Man that is used, gardener? Husband is used one time, one time, yeah. one time. And it means right. farmer. Right, it means farmer, yeah. okay. the tiller of the field. When you're talking about husband, the you know the the construence was he took her to be his wife. In the sefer, we say he took her to be his woman, but you know it has been construed by interpreters that ish and isha, ish being husband, isha being wife, and that is the construction that is you know pretty common. I mean, it's common in the Jewish world and pretty common in the English world. That 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 Ish and Isha are construed as husband and wife, although when you look at the provision of Adam and Eve, when you look at Genesis one, it talks about male and female, Zakar and Nechaba. But when you talk about Adam and Eve, they're never referred to as Zakar and Nechaba. They're referred to as Ish and Isha. So it means man and woman fundamentally, uh, and but is construed as husband as, as husband and wife. So for instance, let me give you an example. We talk about this. What's the difference between a wife and a concubine, given what we're seeing here in the Torah provision, right? Legal you, rights Torah, you pick up a woman, yeah. you bring her home, she, she, you shave her head, she hangs up for 30 days, and then she's your wife, right? How, why isn't she the concubine? 
That's a very good question. I wish I knew the answer. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, so I mean, you know, the you know, this whole idea and 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 the whole idea of concubine. I mean, what's the difference between the wife and the concubine? The wife uh, gets the stuff; the concubine doesn't. I mean, you know, I mean, and when you look at what goes on, for instance, with Yaakov, he has two wives and two concubines, and they create the twelve tribes of Yasharel. And so this is, you know, I mean, it, these are the kinds of things when I look at this, I'm like, okay, well, I wish I had an idea what, really what was going on here, uh, you know. And so uh, at any rate, but, you know, the point I'm making about this particular provision is that the Torah does specify, it makes it very clear that when a man divorces his bride and she marries another man, even if the man dies, the first husband cannot take her back. Even if the man dies, the first husband cannot take her back. Now, with that being said, again, look at the model that we see in the Gospels. Who is the first person in the Gospels to come to salvation? The woman at the well. The woman at the well. That's exactly right. The woman at the well is the first one to come to salvation. And what does Mashiach say to her? Go and get your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, that's right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with right now is not your husband. And she says to him, uh, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Right? I perceive yeah, you're on to something here. I perceive you are a prophet. And he says to her, I will give you water to drink from which you will never thirst again. The very first person to come into salvation is a woman who's been divorced five times and is living with a man in cohabitation. The very first person to come into salvation is that woman. Now, I've heard this described in one Christian church after another. Oh, the whore at the well. Oh, yeah, she was a fallen woman. Oh, she was a this, she was a that, she was the other thing. They don't realize that they're talking, that he's talking about Yasharel. That's who that woman is. That woman is Yasharel, married to Baal, married to Molech, married to Dagon, married to Ishtar, married to the queen of heaven, married to this way, married to that way, married to the other way, married to every single Elohim out there except the true one. That's what that's really all about. It's not about her being a harlot, quote unquote. And when you talk about a harlot, I mean, you think about this. She was married five times. Therefore, she must be a whore. Oh, really? What if her parents failed to get a token of her virginity and her husband thought she was pretty hot? And after he had sex with her the first time, didn't think she was so hot anymore and kicks her to the curb. And she says, well, you can't do that. And he says, where's your token of virginity? Show it to me. Even though he may know full well that she was a virgin, but she didn't keep a token. So he kicks her to the curb. So the next thing you know, she's defiled when the next guy marries her. And the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. And does it tell us here if what the second guy had to establish to divorce her? What did the second guy have to establish to give her a certificate of divorce? That she burnt the toast? 
I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm just asking. We just look at this and saying, okay, what's going on here? Maybe they all kicked the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's go on to this next provision here in, in verse five. When a man has taken a new woman, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his woman, which he has taken. Yeah, a new woman, you know, is kind of an interesting way to put it. When he, when a man has newly taken a woman is a better way to understand it. When a man has newly taken a woman, when his marriage is new, okay. Okay, keep going. No man shall take the nether or the upper millstone to pledge, for he takes a man's life to pledge. Yeah, in other words, you can't take the tools of a man's uh, profession uh, at the pawn shop. You should never do that. Now, I didn't mention on the issue of usury, by the way. The issue of usury is prohibited in scripture, okay? And when you look at the whole concept of, of the complete holistic version of scripture, you shall not charge your brother usury. A stranger, you can charge usury, but your brother, you shall not charge usury. Okay, so who is your brother in the New Testament? Right? Who is your neighbor in the New Testament? Whoever you have mercy on. Whoever what? You have mercy on. Yeah, whoever you have mercy on. So what is this business? So who are you supposed to charge usury from? And I can tell you that in the Christian faith, beginning in, with Constantine and moving forward with the, in the Western or Eastern tradition, usury was prohibited by the faith, period. In, in the Western Empire, you could not charge interest. And it became such a problem that they had to bring in Jews or create Jews who would charge interest. So a lot of the first Jews that were found in, in Venice, the Jews that were found in Torino, the Jews that were found in Florence, they weren't Jews at all. They were people that were picked up by the church and said, you become Jewish and start charging interest so that we can make some money on this deal. That's what was going on. But usury in the United States is banned by statute in almost every state as well. Tell it to your credit card that's charging you 35%, right? You know, the mafia in the 70s would, 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 have, would have blushed talking about usury above 20%. They would have blushed. That doesn't stop a bank from charging you 35%. Ridiculous, it's obscene. Anyway, usury under the statute is prohibited. Now here you also see something here, you shall not take neither the, the, the neither or the upper millstone to pledge because it's a man's life. That's how he's going to eat in his, with his millstone. Now this, you know, the, the banks, the initial banks, the banks that were created before the Templars created international banking were pawn shops. That's what they were, they were pawn, what we would call a pawn shop is street banking. Best way to understand it, street banking. And the street bankers made a tremendous amount of money. And the money they made was, you know, it was to the point, like, for instance, the ghetto in Torino, they had all the Jews sequestered in a, in a closed off area, one, one way in and one way out. And you go into that ghetto and you say, these people aren't very rich. They were absolutely filthy rich to the point that when they decided to build a new synagogue in downtown Torino, they built the largest single building in Europe. And once they realized it was the largest building in Europe, they didn't dare 
put the Star of David on the front of that building for fear that everybody would recognize how filthy rich they were and how filthy rich they'd gotten from practicing usury. So they gave the building away and it became a museum. Rather, it never opened as a synagogue, even though it was built as a synagogue. And so this happened through the charging of usury and was done by pawnbrokers. Okay. Verse 7. If a man be found stealing of his brethren of the children of Yasharah and makes merchandise of him or sells him, then that thief shall die and you shall put away, you shall put evil away from among you. Well, that's interesting because did you know at the time of the Civil War, 80 something percent of all the slave owners in America were Jews? Interesting. Okay, verse eight. Take heed in the plague of leprosy that you guard diligently and do according to all that the priests of the Levine shall teach you as I commanded them. So you shall guard to do. Remember at what Yahweh Eloheka did unto Miriam, by the way, after that ye were come forth out of Mitzrayim. Yeah. Now, you know, leprosy has been found in Florida now. Did you know that? Malaria, leprosy, typhus, all kinds of stuff breaking out in the country now. Okay. Yeah, Gates and his uh, robotic mosquitoes release use that as a, as a matter of fact, as we need to get, yeah, right? <laughs> okay. Ten, when you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to fetch his pledge. You shall not stand abroad, and the man to whom you lend shall bring out the pledge abroad unto you. Yeah, you shall be, stand abroad. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And if the man be poor, you shall not sleep with his pledge. In any case, you shall deliver him the pledge again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own raiment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness unto you before Yahweh. Yeah, so it, basically it's take the pledge in writing. Don't take it, don't take it actually, but take the pledge in writing. And you're not, you not to, I'm sorry. When it comes time to repossess it, you're not supposed to go into his house to get it. So <laughs> stand out on the front and say, hey, bring the stereo out because we're here to repossess it. Okay. You shall not oppress a hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of your brethren or of your strangers that are in your land within your gates. At his day, you shall give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it. For he is poor and sets his heart upon it, lest he cry against you unto El Yahweh. And if he sin unto you, the father shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Okay, huge premise. Now compare this premise here, this teaching in this provision to, uh, you know, I shall remember your iniquity to the fourth generation. What is Yah talking about in the Ten Commandments when he says, I shall remember your iniquity into the fourth generation? And the iniquity there talked about is Avon, right? Well, I think what he's saying there is that your iniquity is going to be remembered into the fourth generation. The children are not going to be put to death for the sin of the father. But they're going to remember the iniquity of the father unto the fourth generation. 
it will be called to mind. The iniquity will be called to mind under the fourth generation. Okay, go ahead. Even genetic memory, perhaps. Yeah, epigenetic so, memory. Yeah, right. You shall not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But you shall remember that you were a bondman in Mitzrayim, and Yahweh Eloheka redeemed you thence. Therefore, I command you, do this thing. When you cut down your harvest in your field and have forgot a sheep in the field, you shall not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that Yahweh Eloheka may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. And it shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Mitzrayim. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Okay. 25. If there be a controversy between men and they come unto judgment that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Oh, imagine shall, that. Yeah. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, then the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face, according to his fault, by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then your brother should seem violent to you. Yeah, now let's hold this right here because here you see the Torah clearly provides for corporal punishment. And, uh, you know, Antonin Scalia, a judge with the U.S. Supreme Court, said that corporal punishment does not violate the idea of cruel and unusual punishment. Of the one jurisdiction still engaged in corporal punishment to this day is, of course, Singapore. And in Singapore, they have a provision that limits the number of stripes, I think, to 39 stripes, not 40. And I don't think they have ever given 39 stripes. I think the, the most they have ever given anyone was 20 or 21 stripes. But you're talking about these 10th degree black belts in martial arts taking these long sugarcane rods that the very first lash you get causes lacerations. Your skin is cut open from the very first lash. And so when you start talking 20 stripes, I mean, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be in some, you're going to be chewed meat. That's the bottom line. You're going to be chewed up meat. And, but they routinely give out this corporal punishment. You know, typically it's between three and 10 stripes. They don't do it publicly. They do it privately. I think it should be done publicly, particularly for offenses like uh, uh, second, third, fourth degree assault. Would probably be handled with public stripes because you've used violence against another person. Therefore, violence should come back to you in this respect and it should be public. And that, and here it does say, you shall do it right in front of the judge, right there, right in front of the judge, right there. So the judge sees what's going on. And equally important that the judge isn't ruling from some uh, ivory tower and somebody's getting beaten over the corner, he never sees about it. You know, the way it stands right now, we have an extremely unjust penal system. Nobody wants to talk about it. 
But in America, we have 7 million people in prison. And uh, unless you've actually seen the prison experience, you have no idea how horrific it is. And when you talk about, oh, well, that person needs to be, you know, that person needs to be put in a cell and the key tossed away. Really, somebody makes a decision when they're 19 years old to, you know, steal some jewelry from a jewelry store. Well, that person needs to get 25 years. 25 years, the guy's 44 years old. He, you know, he would have stopped making that decision when he turned 30. But by the time you put him in prison for 25 years, paid his bills for 25 years, fed him for 25 years, he's essentially a worthless human being. He is a convict and he's nothing other than a convict and he will always be a convict. So, I mean, these things, you know, we, uh, we really need to reconsider what we're doing with prisons. And I do believe that corporal punishment should be a part of the mechanism. People are reformed with corporal punishment. They are. They're reformed with corporal punishment, as Singapore can prove. And, uh, you know, uh, it's not to be given out, you know, incorrectly, but it's amazing that people have a, a very much a strong wake-up call after they've had some corporal punishment. It's a big wake-up call. And the offenses tend to go away. And when they don't, then you have an incorrigible person. And then you have to deal with that a different way. Okay, let's keep going. You shall not must. It, it made me think as a parent, when, when my oldest son um, tried me one day in a store, he, you see the typical thing in stores saying, you know, we get in the car, Johnny, now. You're going to get mad you're getting, and they never get anything, of course. And the kid's going crazy and doing everything he wants. Well, right in the store, I, I gave him one strong tap on it. He, he took something, and I looked at him, and he never did it again. And I love my son with all my heart. But it was to his advantage because that pain stuck right there. So, oh, he was in shock. He looked at me, but he never he never repeated that again. And that was a scriptural principle in me. So spare that rod. And what happens? You got a juvenile delinquent that's going to turn into a lifetime crime real fast without any form of that. So that applies with that too. You know, corporal punishment is sometimes is needed. And if it's public and you get to see that, and how many crimes would there be out there if it was swift and taken care of right on the spot? Yeah. And the public humiliation, because there's nothing worse for a kid than to be embarrassed. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it worked with my kids too. Yeah, yeah. Of course, now you get taken downtown and get thrown in jail for, you know, you get caught on the camera. I'm going to get arrested. Yeah, that's so crazy. That well, I mean, those were, the, those were the good old days, Angelo, when you just get taken downtown and arrested because you got caught on camera. You know, now it's we're going to take your kid and transgender him while you're in prison. Right. And, uh, anyway, yeah, it's, it's a much worse situation now. But anyway, that's another story. But yeah. let's keep going. I, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, but it, was just, it just reminded me. Of that. Um, four, you must not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the woman of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her man's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to be his woman and perform the duty of a man's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother, which is dead, that his name be not put out of Yasharel. And if the man like not to take his brother's woman, then let his brother's woman go up to the gate unto the elders and say, my man's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Yasharel. He will not perform the duty of my man's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him, 
And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's woman come unto him in the presence of the elders and lose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Yisrael, the house of him that has his shoe loosed. Was that the one with uh, the kinsman uh, that uh, Boaz? Was that what happened there? Uh, he had to yeah. go through that process with the... Yep. And and you had the same thing, you had the same process happen with um, Judah and his three Canaanite sons, right? The second son was like, I'm not touching her, right? And and she should have been able to, she should have been able to do this where the second son was concerned and said, okay, this is the house that has him that has his shoe loosed. And what happens with the woman at this point when she when she when she has no uh, no one to marry her? What is what happens? Right. This becomes a big quandary. And the answer is, is that she would become the mother of the bloodline of Mashiach. Yeah. In the case of Tamar, right. OK, let's keep going. When men strive. Is that where I'm at? Eleven. My yeah, Eleven. Yeah. When men strive together one with another and the woman of the one draws near to deliver her man out of the hand of him that smites him and puts forth her hand and takes him by the secrets. Then you shall cut off her hand, your eyes shall not pity her. Yeah, that's, that's, that's cold-blooded. I can't read that, it was hard to read that, I'm sorry. That's that's cold-blooded, it's like, okay, you know, you get you get a woman who's, uh, you get a woman who's, you know, talks her husband into getting in a fight with a man, right? And then when she gets in a fight, she enters into the fight by grabbing the other guy by the secrets. Well, if she does that, cut her hand off. Whoa, whoa, all right, that's, that's quite the sanction. All right, let's keep going. You shall not have in your bag diverse weights, a great and a small. You shall not have in your house diverse measures, a great and a small, but you shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, so you have, that your days may be lengthened in the land which Yahweh Eloheka gives you. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto Yahweh Eloheka. There it is. Stop cheating. Right? And, and, you know, and part of the reason, I mean, yeah, you're an abomination to Yahweh, but you're also an abomination to yourself. Because when you keep cheating and lying, you get to a point where pretty soon you don't know what the true weight is. You don't know what the accurate scale is because you've got no idea. Because you've been cheating for so long, all you know is to lie. Okay. And keep going. Remember what Amalek? Yes. Remember what Amalek did unto you, by the way, when you were come forth out of Mitzrayim. How he met you, by the way, and smote the hindmost of you, even all that were feeble behind you, when you were faint and weary, and he feared not Elohim. Therefore it shall be when Yahweh Eloheka has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which Yahweh Eloheka gives you, for an inheritance to possess it, and you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget it. Your poor Amalek, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of people use this as a, you know, this is the only Torah portion they remember. We're going to exact revenge against Amalek. You know, well, what about all the other rest of the portions? Well, I don't remember any of that. All I know is I want to get revenge against Amalek. You know, and of course, is Amalek even existence in existence anymore? You know, that's another question too. And who is he? And how do you know? Right. Okay. So 
Does someone else want to read the Yeshayahu? Somebody want to read the Isaiah passage? Drew, you want to take that on, brother? Yeah, I'll read. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Angelo. Thanks for that reading, brother. Thank you for the privilege. I appreciate it. Okay, go ahead. 54, 1 through 10. All right. Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren, that you did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married women, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations. Spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left, and your seed shall inherit the other nations and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be confounded. For you shall not be put to shame, for you shall forget the shame of your youth and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, Yahweh Sevaot is his name, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Yashorel, the Elohai of the whole earth, whole earth shall he be called. For Yahweh has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in a ruach and a woman of youth when you were, when you were refused, says your Elohim. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Hallelujah. Amen. This is as the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed but my kindness shall not depart from you. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says Yahweh that has mercy on you. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great passage, huh? What yeah. A great, a great and phenomenal promise that he gives. And we should all keep that in mind. For a lot of, for a lot of women that have been unable to bear children, uh, they, you know, it's a, a heartache that just doesn't seem to go away. And yet, if, when you have that heartache, you should know that Yah is going to put many other children in your life, many, and this is what he's saying: make your make, make your house larger because you're going to have even more children than those who bear children, because many will come under your care, and it's a very important thing because he does have mercy and he does redeem the heart and he does redeem the soul in a way that allows you to love like a parent. Okay, and then finally we have uh, uh, the Lucas passage. And uh, John, do you, want, do you want to read that passage here? Yeah, yeah, you want to read it? Uh, yeah, I can. I had a comment on that one we just read, though. It seems to me that that speaks directly to what we were just talking about, about Yasharel and being the husband, right? It says right there, for your maker is your husband. Yahuwah Sabaot is his name, right? And it says, I'll forget the sins of your youth. And that's talking about Yah's mercy once again, you know, um, and how his forgiveness is always there, right? Just like he said, Yahushua says, I desire, think about what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you know? Yeah, yeah, and he's always demonstrating that. And so that to me is that husband line you know that always comes up for your maker is your husband right yahoo is our husband so we are in a way i understand the the 
both sides of the bride and not the bride, you know, but in a way, he says that he is our husband, right? When he receives us back after all that we've done, all the ways that all the times that we've turned away from him, he always gives that opportunity. You know, he tells them when he's talking about Yehuda being worse than a sister, he always still says, but return to me, you know, and I will return to you. He always gives them that opportunity, you know, like if you will repent, that's what I want. I want to come back to you, but you know, it takes that repentance to get the forgiveness, yeah. you know? Yeah. Very good point. So very good point. Okay. Well, let's take a look at this because again, in the Torah portion, we were talking about he who hangs on a tree is a curse of Elohim, right? Can you see that? Okay. Can you read it? Actually, I don't have it pulled up. So, uh, Okay, Maybe well, somebody else can do it. Well, um, Take me a minute. Anybody else want to read it? Anybody else want to volunteer into this? I'd love to read it. Okay, Mark, you got it. All right. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Mashiach, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Ahudim? And he answered him and said, You say it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Yehuda, beginning with Galil, to this place. When Pilate heard of Galil, he asked whether the man were a Galilee. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Yerushalayim at that time. And when Herod saw Yahusha, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And Pilate when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. Boom. Boom. No, nor ye, Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity, he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Bar Abba, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Yahushua, spoke again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? 
What evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore, therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto him, unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But et, he delivered Yahusha to their will. Yeah, extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, there, <clears throat> the book of the Gospel of Nicodemus, which is also called the Acts of Pontius Pilate, goes into much more detail on this particular argument that took place. And, you know, and we get kind of, we get different aspects of the argument, whether it's in Lucas or it's in John or it's in Matthew. You know, when, when Pilate's wife comes to him and says, I had a dream about this guy. Don't get anywhere near him. Stay away from him. And Pilate actually kind of breaks into a cold sweat thinking about it. And then, of course, he gets in front of the Jews and he washes his hands. I wash my hands of your demolition, right? You remember when he does this, he washes his hands to avoid the destruction. But ultimately, according to Acts 29, Pontius Pilate commits suicide, jumps off a mountain cliff in Switzerland. And it's well known in Switzerland. I mean, you could talk to the Swiss who live there and they tell you, oh yeah, we know right where that mountain is and we know that he did it and that's the case, right? Well, anyway, it's an interesting Torah portion and I think we've explored a lot here today and I think we've had a, a good discussion. I want to thank Angelo and Drew and Mark for your reading, guys. Thank you. I'd like to share just one quick thing on that last thing that was mentioned. I just, just a curiosity. When you go into Yeshiyahu, and where it says husband, uh, and you look at it in the uh, Hebrew, you have a, a, a bait, ayin, lamet, yod, kuf. So it's basically referring to my master. And it can mean a lot of different things, right? As a master, or that would be the husband would be a master, certainly. But it's it's right out of Hebrew there. It's basically saying Baali. Not, yeah, not the word Baali is, I mean, in, in the Hebrew today, if you ask a woman in Israel to refer to her husband, she calls him Baali. Baali, yeah. And she calls her husband Baali, yeah. And so I think of the preciousness of that when they called him master. You think of the apostles, you know, master, teacher. This is a this is this is my owner. This is my owner. This well, yeah, but this is where you get into some real questions, right? Because when you when you have the Greek, you don't have this clear, you don't have this clear understanding of Baali being used, right? It's not clear. Now, the passage that says Adonai, Adonai, we've cast out demons in your name, we've healed in your name, and done other wondrous works, and he says to them, "Get away from me! I do not know you, you workers of iniquity." Right? Were they saying Adonai, Adonai, or were they saying Baali, Baali? And there are many people who they want to refer to Mashiach as master. We use the, the word rabbi in most instances in the New Testament because it's referring to teacher, right? And he says, you have but one rabbi, and it is Mashiach. And rabbi does appear in the Greek. And, uh, you know, so when you're talking about this issue, you know, when you're talking about when Hosea says, you shall no longer call me Baali, but you shall call me Ishi. Well, Baali is one form of husband, and it means master, right? So the relationship, you know, when you talk about a marital relationship in scripture, it's very clear looking at the Torah portion that it was definitely a patriarchy. 
I mean, you're not going to get around that. It's as obvious as it can be. It was a skewed patriarchy, the man making the decisions, and that was it. And uh, and so, you know, but when you talk about the idea of Baali versus Ishi, so when you see Baali as the form of husband, that that, forward is, that word is Lord and Master. When you see the word Ishi as husband, it's more like my man, right? It's more, it means more like my man, not my Lord and Master. So it's, a, it's, but Hosea says, you shall no longer call me Baali. You shall call me Ishi, right? That's how the passage goes. So it leaves us something to consider and something to concern ourselves with as we look through this. So one other thing that I want to point out that's in the chat, and then we'll go to a couple last comments here, is uh, uh, Victoria and Barry are pointing out, so I looked and behold a pale green horse and the name of whom sat on him was death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given over them to kill with the sword of fourth of the earth, and with hunger and death, and with by beasts of the earth. And of course, now we see this, you know, there's been notice about this green comet that is supposed to be appearing in front of the sun on September 23rd, and is supposed to make an appearance for three days. Now, the sun is quite a, lar a large object. And is this comet so big or so close to the Earth that it's going to blot out the sun and create an eclipse? I mean, that's another question. And I don't know. I mean, I heard about this thing for the first time yesterday. And they're saying that the Japanese have known about this for a long time, that this is an 8,000-year orbit that comes in, that this inordinate order, uh, orbit of the comet. If, is this comet Planet X, you know, is this this gigantic object that is going to come and eclipse the sun? And isn't there three days of darkness discussed in scripture, right? Three days of darkness that the sun should be blotted out? Well, is this thing that large that it will do it? And it's supposed to be green and so on and so forth. The way it stands right now, I don't know enough about this to really discuss it with you uh, in detail. Uh, but needless to say, and they're saying that this is going to make its appearance on September 23rd. Isn't that interesting? That's, and, that, and you're supposed to be able to see it in the heavens by September 11th. And uh, so anyway, this is going to be an interesting set of circumstances, especially since I'm supposed to be on a plane on the 24th. So uh, we, we shall see. We're not going to be able to fly because we can't see anything. We'll just use your GPS tracker. It's not working. You know, so anyway, I guess, you know, flying VFR will be out of the question, you know. Of course, who flies VFR in a, in a commercial jet anyway, right? But uh, so anyway, but the but the thing is, is that uh, we'll, we'll see. We're, we'll talk more about that. You guys do some research on that this week. We'll talk more about that green comet maybe next week. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about it. Okay. All right. So, Catherine, did you want to uh, did you want to uh, say some things to us here today? Yeah, I want to go back to the Torah and um, men and women's clothing. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, it's very, very interesting because we know it's an abomination for men to wear women's clothing. Now, when we go back to the biblical way of dressing, um, the inner garment of a woman and a man was very similar in the ancient of days in Israel. But if you go to Isaiah 47.2 and Jeremiah 13.2, what happens is it talks about 
the woman's garment, outer garment now, being different to a man's. Now, a woman had a big fringe or a borderline at the base, and generally her tunic was much longer than a man's. Now, the slaves and soldiers only wore their tunics to their knees because they did a lot of physical work. Now, the women and the men wore belts, but the women's were more ornate. And um, the women's had different patterns on their dresses, and they also had aprons attached to their belts. Um, but um, also the woman had head coverings, whether it was hooded head, head covering or whether it was a veil. Now that I think will be in a scripture in Enoch somewhere where they had to wear head coverings because of the fallen angels. That's so in, there were. It's 11. Is it? Thank you. It's 11, yeah. And um, so, so there. There were definitely differences, but they were very, the garment was, the inner garment was virtually the same as a man. Now also women wore jewelry. Um, Abraham's servants present earrings and bracelets to Rebecca that you'll right. find in Genesis. Right, right. Right. Also the woman had um, hooped earrings. I mean, it, it's um, also in Isaiah 3, 16 to 23. Now, the bracelets were normally for women, were materials such as gold. Um, they also wore anklets, musical, you know, bracelets on their ankles, you know, with little bells. Well, that's and, right. Um, right. Judges... I mean, that's Isaiah 3, 16 to 20. Judges 8 to 24. Um, that talks about um, women's earrings. Um, and um, so women were a little bit ornate. Their patterns on their outer garments were a bit more elaborate. Men were quite plain. Except when then, you get to so the then, priests. If the men were wearing, uh, so women were wearing basically garments that went all the way to their ankles. And men yes, they needed that. They needed that border fringe to cover their feet. Because okay. that's, so then, yeah. Men were wearing because I'm trying to think about how is a woman wearing a man's garment, right? So, yeah, there was there were slight differences because the woman's garment was longer. Generally, the Jewish men that came to to um, the back of their calf, okay, whereas so soldiers and slaves were up to the knees. So if a woman was wearing a dress up to her knees, she's actually wearing a man's garment. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that Long skirts, ladies. <laughs> and, and so, so you could tell the transgendered guys because they were wearing an apron and a veil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in. Um, what I'll do, because I know we were looking at ancient clothing a while back on the ark, 
but yeah. sadly we didn't we, we we didn't do any research on the Hebrew ancient clothing, but I'll put a couple of articles in that for you. Yeah, excellent. Well, that's a good discussion, Catherine. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Doctor. Hello. In relation to that, I was wondering um, the undergarments. If there were different, you know, like men wore what a loincloth, and I don't know what women wore underneath. Catherine was saying that they, were, they were very similar. You know, everybody was girding their loins. You know, and. Yeah. You know, okay. basically the undergarments were just kind of a, you know, a wraparound, if you will, you know. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, yeah, you know, you know, yeah. Uh, just the outer garments had more differences with patterns of women and the length of the tunic. Um, robes were mainly for priests, kings and the Romans. But no, it's um, but we've got to take into account that the woman wore headdresses because of the fallen angels. Yeah, yeah. So the headdress. Yeah, yeah. Well, the modern look, modern Roman word is veil. Yeah. Well, very good points, Catherine. I really appreciate that, and I think that kind of gives us a little bit of an indication that there was there was some differentiation. I mean, have we still, yeah. you know, have we still determined what is a woman? A woman is clearly a, someone who wears an apron and a head covering. End of discussion. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And the tunic to her feet. <laughs> yeah, and the tunic to her feet. Yeah, yeah. Okay. According to Abraham. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Okay. Uh, Melissa, are you there? Felix, you guys there? Yes. Hi. Um, I just wanted to, uh, I know I had asked a bunch of questions before because we, uh, like I said before, found a messianic um, congregation out here in Southern California, which is very rare. And I had a couple weeks ago asked you about Sukkot and um, our church is doing a, an immersion this weekend. And I'm just wondering, uh, they did a whole teaching about immersion and and it's a yearly thing to prepare for the holy days i just want and there were lots of scriptures i just wanted to hear uh what you thought of that and well it depends on if you're if you distinguish between the the uh mitzvot uh excuse me the mikvah and which is the the jewish practice is mikvah and that is, in my opinion, uh, not necessarily what goes on with the baptism, because a baptism really, I believe that the baptism is similar to dipping the hyssop in blood and then putting the blood on the doorpost, that the idea of dipping the hyssop in blood is that when we, when we take on the baptism, we are the hyssop that's being dipped in the blood. And so the passage that's written in 1 John of five seven that says there are three in heaven and they are one and there are three on earth which is the water the blood and the ruach and they agree with each other what this is telling you is that the baptism of, of water is the same as being baptized in blood the baptism of the ruach is the same as being baptized in water because they agree as one and so the idea is that for us we are that our salvation comes to us because we are the hyssop dipped in the blood 
that is then struck over the doorpost of our lives, which is the Pesach salvation, the mm -hmm. blood of the lamb, we are dipped in the blood of the lamb. And, but you compare that to a mikvah, a mikvah is a ceremonial cleanness. Now, you know, and I don't want to say that, the, that I'm excluding one from the other because Mashiach went to John the Baptist and said, it is necessary for you to baptize me because he had to have that ceremonial purity that was associated with uh, at the hand of the Levite priest. Remember, his mother performed the Torah perfectly when he was born. And he too was performing the ceremony perfectly that before he would come into his ministry, that he would be ceremonially cleaned in a mikvah by a Levite priest. And I believe Yohanan the Baptist, the immerser, was a true Levite. In fact, he was the true high priest. And so when Herod the Tetrarch had him beheaded, he beheaded the high priest of Yasharel. And by the way, wow. he did that. He ended, he ended the Levite priesthood. So, I mean, the sin of Herod the Tetrarch is huge beyond even any imagination. It's recorded in the Gospels, but it is a huge, huge sin. He ended the Levite priesthood. That was the end of it. And the temple would then be destroyed thereafter. There would be no temple because there was no Levite priesthood because they had killed the high priest. And, uh, and then, of course, the priesthood of Melikit Sadiq in Mashiach arises a priesthood by oath, not by blood. And, uh, you know, and so this is, again, it's one of the, it's a more detailed discussion we're going to have to take on later. But yeah, do not be afraid of that kind of baptism. You know, when we talk about one baptism, it's one baptism that you're not going to get baptized into a Buddhist baptism, right? You're baptized mm -hmm. in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Mashiach. And the baptism is something different too, because we replace all of the sacrifices of the animal sacrifices are replaced with baptism and with prayer. All those, the, the other, you know, let's, let's kill a bull, let's kill a lamb, let's kill some birds, all this stuff. That stuff is all replaced with baptism and prayer. Because right. you know, it's, it's, it's a world that is marked by forgiveness and repentance and prayer, not by the sacrifice of animals. Right. Well, the, the thing that I guess concerned me was this was a yearly thing and it sounded very. Um, it's not well, really a baptism. It's a it's a mikvah. Right. Okay. So. So that that doesn't concern you. Well, it depends on how they're trying to construe it. If they're construing this as a baptism and, and asking you to confess the name over and over again that is that would concern me if they're talking about a ceremonial mikvah where it's just a cleansing that wouldn't concern me okay okay all right thank you okay okay good good question hi sherry hi um i was wondering about thursday night uh what's going on with that and then also i don't know the situation but alicia abel has an emergency situation and she wanted prayer for that. Alicia did. Yeah, Alicia, and I don't, I don't know what's going on. Okay, okay, we'll pray for her. Well, yeah, Thursday. I'm, I think I'm going to go back to twice a month on Thursdays, every other week. Um, and I think sometimes um, uh, less is more. If you know what I mean. And I don't want to be getting to a point where I get watered down or diluted or I'm uninspired and I'm just trying to go through the. the machinations of doing something 
rather than doing the presentment that is really inspired from Yah. So I hope that answers your question. Sharon. It does, and it sounds great. You know, I, I, I love the subscriber base and everybody that's there on Thursdays, and it, it means a great deal to me. And But I just have to be careful about what I do, you know. And it's mm -hmm. like all the things that I'm doing right now, I'm trying to be very careful about how I present myself and what I do and and uh, and the kinds of things that we have to do on behalf of the kingdom right now. I mean, you know, given what's coming up, the fact that there's more lockdowns that are being proposed, right. there's, uh, you know, 15-minute cities and, you know, all kinds of stuff that were, you know, required for passport and travel, and we're going to be traveling in, in the face of this anyway. Uh, you know, I just, you know, uh, it, it, all the traveling is becoming more and more risky. And the, and they don't, you know, they don't, the last thing they want anybody to do is travel and see other people face to face. But we've made a vow that we were going to travel no matter what, unless our plane is actually physically stopped, we're going. Or and, if they require the vax, right? Or if they require the vax, yeah. And, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, uh, the mask is one thing, because if they go back to the mask mandate, I'm going to get me one of those you know, medieval plague masks you know, with the big beak. I'm going to wear that on the plane. <laughs> you said mask, I got mine. <laughs> and it gives me the opportunity to go back to the bank wearing a balaclava, which I've always enjoyed doing. There you go. You know, there are some, there are some fun things about the mask that one sure. just has to simply enjoy, right? I mean, I remember one time I went on the plane, they said, you know, you have to wear a mask on the plane. I said, okay, fine. So I had a, one of those tube masks, you know? <laughs> And I put that tube mask on and I put my cap on over it and I put my sunglasses on. You couldn't see one inch of flesh. <laughs> and I walked on the plane and the flight attendants are like, really? And I said, you said mask. This is what you get. And you go in a bank like that and you're going to get jumped. <laughs> hey, we went into the bank. Dave, Dave Castro and I went into the bank. They wouldn't let us in do this during the pandemic. And we were trying to withdraw 10,000 10, bucks. And so we go to the bank. We had to make an appointment. We go down there, you know, after two days, masks are required. So I wear my balaclava in there, you know, Dave's wearing his mask, you know, and we come in and we, we get 10,000 in cash. And I said, Dave, we're, as we're walking out the door, I said, Dave, here we are walking out of this bank with 10,000 in cash, wearing masks, Jesse James, eat your heart out. <laughs> we're, we're, getting, we're getting away with it. We're doing it. Right. And uh, so anyway, you know, you can have fun with this thing and, you know, it's like, and, and I love, I love having, you know, I mean, not to give these people grief, but they're so irrational and the logic is so bad. I just love having fun with them. It's like when you, when you go in and they got the little gun, they want to take your temperature, you know, and we need to take your temperature and they want to point that gun at you. You know, one of the things I like to do before I go into a place where I know they're going to do that is I take an ice pack and put it on my forehead and just let it sit on my forehead for about 10 minutes. And then walk in there and they point the gun at you and they're like, 43 degrees? Really? Aren't you dead? In which case, we can have a blast and a riot. But the last, the last gal that tried to take my temperature that way, I said, well, wait a minute, before you take my temperature. She said, what is it? I said, well, who's your malpractice carrier? She said, what? Malpractice carrier? Yeah. I mean, here you are. You're practicing medicine without a license. And if you diagnose me as having a fever then I may have to quarantine for the next two weeks, which is going to put me out of work, which means my income is going to fall, which means I'm going to tap your malpractice carrier. So who's your malpractice carrier? Oh, you can go in. We don't need to take your temperature. Surprise, surprise. 
I knew you didn't need it when I got here, right? Or how about you have to scan this VR code to enter this place? So I take my phone in the off mode, put it up in front of the VR code. I'm not scanning anything. I, my phone's off. There you go. Okay, you can come in. Yeah, thanks. Ding, 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 you know. One has to have fun with these protocols. And then, of course, in the contact tracing form, put down your name over there and give us your phone number. Okay, so I put down the governor's name. And, of course, what phone number did I give him? 8675309. What other phone number would I use? <laughs> you you got to give everybody the right number. Or otherwise, they can't call you. Okay. Hi, Raina. Blessings to you, sister. How are you? Good. Shabbat shalom to all. Shabbat shalom. Uh, when prayers goes up uh, for Shane. Amen. How, does anybody know how Randall is? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Because I haven't seen him on the Shabbat. That's a good question. We should try to find out. I'll see if I can talk to some people who know him. And Maria and um, they're up here in Florida. Forget about his name is Maria. Oh, Maria Isabella and James. Is it, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And John Barr. John Barr. Yeah, John was with us earlier, I think. Okay. Are you talking about me? Well, Kazar, what are you doing here? Tell us about you. Oh, I was I asked for a prayer the um, last week uh, for my breast cancer. And have the prayers worked out for you? Or do we need to keep praying for you? You absolutely need to keep praying for me. But I have to say that um, that I have had such a shalom since that prayer about everything that I'm doing and everything that Yah wants me to do. And I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Excellent. Fantastic. Okay. And, and we have to pray for Alicia. So let's do that. Let's pray right now. Okay. And for, and for, sorry, Would for you your traveling that uh, we all be in, in one accord that yes, will be done uh, regarding your traveling and your, and, and what, the new uh, what he Sefer and um, what's coming up. So and and if we would pray that he will do just what he says. Amen. Okay. Dr. Ariel? P, yeah, would you kindly pray for my hand again? It's interesting because the sharpness of the pain has gone down. It's I still have pain. But the sharpness of it, and I have a little more flexibility in some of my fingers. And this is in your so right it, hand. This is in your right in hand. In the right hand. Yeah, it seems to have helped. Yeah. So we greatly appreciate a little more, if you don't mind. Thank uh, you. Let's, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, yeah. you now to lift up the brothers and sisters again before you. And we're coming to you in one voice, Father, knowing that you have ears that hear and hands that move on behalf of your children. Father, we praise you and give thanks that this is who you are. Father, we want to take a moment to lift up once again our brother Shane Knott, that uh, you would not only bless him with miraculous cures and healing, but you would also guide those that are around him. That first, they would have ears to hear the name of Yahweh, and their hearts would be opened. 
and their eyes would be open and their ears would be open, that they would have eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to think carefully about the, what, what they are doing with your child before you. We praise you, Father, for the things you're going to do in his life. Thank you, Father. We praise you for our brother Randall. And Father, we lift him to you now. We don't know what his situation is, but we pray that you are taking care of him and being careful with him and that uh, he is known to you and that uh, and that whatever his situation is, Father, that you would bless him and keep him. And the same with our friends, Maria, Isabella, and James. We also lift our prayers up on behalf of them uh, who are not with us today. May you, may you bless them and keep them. And we lift up Ariel again to you, Father, that you would again move in a miraculous way to restore her right hand entirely with great healing and that the that the bone structure would begin to move back to where it was before and that her hand would begin to be flexible again in a miraculous way and that her right hand could be lifted up in testimony to you, Father, to say that Yahweh lives. We pray for Kazarin too, Father, that you would also bless her and keep her and that you would give her a heart to see exactly what it is you have for her, Father, that her eyes would be open and her ears would be open to hear and to see and to hear your voice and to see your face and to see your face, Father, and all these things as she moves forward. We lift up our brother, John Barr, that you would also bring him into perfect health, keep him, bring him forward, Father. And we lift up all the other brothers and sisters, those who have problems with Alicia. Her, with her, with uh, what's that? Alicia. Oh, we want to lift up our sister Alicia, Father, that you would bless her in every respect, that the emergencies happening in, in her life would not overwhelm her and that she would not be overtaken with grief, but that she would be capable of, capable of handling what the situation is and that to the extent that it's an emergency now, that you would put a shalom over this situation and guide her and keep her and protect her and prosper her in this time, Father that she is going to be able to walk through this valley of fire with no damage and be able to lift up your name and a testimony to you with blessings. So we, play, we pray for the families of the brothers and the sisters that are all around us, Father, that you would bless us and keep us, heal us, move us forward, and bless our travelings, our going in and our coming out. Bless us in the city, bless us in the field, and bless us as we lift up your name. And may your name be placed over us, within us, and upon us, and upon the land where we stand. May your hedge of protection surround us, and we be a, a fortress and a strong tower to us, and lift us up on eagles' wings. We praise you all the time. We praise you in the name of Yahweh HaMashiach, and the glory, the glory of his coming, and the glory of your name be present on this earth in all things. And we all join to say hallelujah, hallelujah, and amen. Hallelujah, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. Wonderful meeting. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Thank you, Earl. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And iPhone Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Wait, Shabbat Shalom, guys. Shabbat Shalom, yeah. I pray for your son. Catherine, I pray for, I pray for you and your son. Thank you. He needs the meeting is not over. There's one more question. Um, I don't think iPhone. Did you did you want to did you want to add something here before we go? Um, no, that's fine. I can wait till next time. Okay, our blessings to you, sister. We'll look forward to hearing from you. Shabbat shalom.
Okay, Shabbat Shalom, guys. Shabbat Shalom. 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 Shabbat Shalom.